You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since All right, everybody, welcome back to the GGTMC. We are live and on the air, and i got to say, this is the first time in a while that I've been able to do a show on a normal schedule, uh, personally, so I'm, I'm pretty excited. <laughs> uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, Will, would be, Will would be happy. He'd be impressed. I couldn't talk to him. He called. I should say, if I don't talk to him before I, he hears this, listens to this next show, he tried to call the other night, but I could not speak a word the other night due to a sore throat. So, um, sorry, Will. Um, but, uh, yeah, everything's okay and we're floating right along. Uh, again, this week I am joined by the Prince of Pennsylvania, Mr. Todd. How you doing, bud? Doing all right, sir. Doing all right. Just, uh, yeah, waking up. So, yeah, good deal. Yep. Yeah. We should also say it's the first time we've done, uh, this is the first time I've done one in the morning, like this in a while. So, yeah. Not only is it a regular scheduled show for me, it's actually a morning show for me too. I, I think. Well, I mean, no, the last one was an afternoon, late afternoon show. So yeah, it's the first time I've done one this early in the morning in a while. So I expect any moment for my wife to come down and give me the look of, "Please take this baby," because this <laughs> baby will drive you crazy in the middle of the night. <laughs> my daughter is uh, yeah, a dynamo, to say the least. Anyway, enough about that. I've spoken enough about that. I love her dearly, but uh, man, I really gotta get that sleep thing down. A um, couple things to go over. This is an Arrow Video show. Uh, this week we're going to be uh, covering. Um, well, hang on, I got it on burial ground for some reason. Rage of Honor, and 19, uh, from nineteen eighty seven, directed by Gordon Hessler, and I believe the other one is called Black Mama, White Mama, uh, from nineteen seventy three to. Uh, three. Yeah, there you go, 73. That wonderful year of 1973, as we say sometimes on the show. And uh, that is directed by one Eddie Romero. Uh, we'll get to those in a little bit. I want to thank our video, as always. Um, and the other thing, <clears throat> excuse me, the other thing I wanted to mention was 
we just mentioned it last week, you know, how close we were to reaching our goal with the uh, Lethal Hunter DVD release. Well, I can officially say that we have reached our goal. So I don't have any sound effects or any fanfare. Uh, yeah. yeah woo-hoo. Um, but we did reach our goal. I uh, want to thank everybody that donated. All the good stuff that uh, is going to come about now, and we'll we'll get it we'll get it done quickly. We know how to do it a little faster this time around. So, first time around, growing pains. This is still the only second DVD we ever put out. Uh, Martin's really the one that heads up the whole thing, and then a bunch of guys in the community that are uh, real tight with us and and everything. We we all kind of get together and put together, but we all kind of learned from the first time around. Some of us had experience before in the past doing something so similar, but I know Will and I had no experience. Uh, with it and uh it took us a while and we had never done a commentary track before we had thought about doing those as podcasts and releasing them but it always seemed kind of difficult to get the timing right because we do we, we record over skype for those who don't know and so um we come to find out it was actually quite simple and we were very happy with the commentary track so when martin had something said he wanted to do another one we were like yeah sure man let's do it and uh we're just happy that it's going to be coming out so be excited guys we're going to have it out there, and again, if you you know if you haven't picked up Final Score on DVD, you can head over to uh, Diabolic DVD, one of our sponsors, and pick it up. Uh, I think it's still well worth the purchase, uh, especially if you've never seen any Indonesian action films. Uh, yeah, absolutely. They are a special breed, <laughs> to say the least. Oh yeah, <laughs> of action. Uh, don't know where we'll go from here, but you know we're going to we're taking one release at a time. So that's the way we look at it. And we're very excited. All right. Um, like I said, again, thank you to everybody that donated. And we'll, we'll get we'll get that going as soon as possible. Uh, okay. So what have you uh, been watching lately, Todd? You been watching anything? Uh, a couple of things. Not a whole lot. Um, I finally caught up with uh, with Deadpool. Um, ah, yeah. And, yeah, I, I, I went into it. I'll be perfectly honest. Deadpool is not my favorite character in the whole wide world. Yeah. yeah. I never really got the appeal of him. Um but I gotta say, I I really enjoyed the movie. It was, you know, I, I was expecting the 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 humor to be just kind of gross and stupid and uh, <laughs> and just you know kind of annoying in that way. That kind of like oh laugh at me, laugh at me kind of thing. But yeah, yeah. And and to a degree it is. But at the same time, man, it worked. Uh, and I wound up really really liking it. Yeah, a lot of fourth wall type stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is something that really, really appeals to me too. Yeah, I read. Uh, um, I read like the first, uh, I don't know, twenty or thirty issues of Deadpool before I realized I didn't really care for the comic that much. I always liked the design of the character. I mean, it's a very Rob Liefeld design. You know, it's oh very, my God, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's essentially the Rob Liefeld design if you think about it. <laughs> yeah, well, him and yeah, him and uh, and uh, who else? Uh, Sh- like that guy, uh, Shatterstar and Cable. Yeah, though, yeah, like those three. Yeah. Yeah, he does a Wolverine type too. Uh, well, maybe no, Shatterstar's not. Is Shatterstar a Wolverine type? He is kind of a Wolverine type in a way. Uh, no, he's kind of like a long shot with a big puffy helmet. Face yeah, plate okay, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, yeah. But he's got like a you know, obviously he's got a very. I mean, teach their own. I know a lot of people make fun of him and stuff. I mean, but in the early '90s, he was you know huge. He was he was huge. But, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I still I still have some nostalgia and appeal for his artwork. Um, but the, uh, I'm interested to see this film actually. I, I didn't want to see it. I, I mean, I'm, st- I'm still not the hugest, uh, I'm not the fastest to watch a comic book film, but, uh, I do like when they take, uh, kind of secondary characters and kind of mess with them a little bit because yeah. at least well, in that a way, playground, isn't it? yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I think you can do a lot more, and you can risk. You can take a lot more risk. Mm-hmm. Like I don't really yeah. think the big movies take very many risks anymore. So no, they absolutely don't. It's yeah, it's a completely different ball game now. Mm-hmm. So I am looking but, forward yeah, to no, checking this it out. Was, this was really, really, really good. Well, not really. Okay, I'm taking off one of those reallys. Okay, really, there you really, go. Really yeah, <laughs> I saw your rating. I was like, oh, Todd, you know. Yeah, I mean, I know what to expect, so I'm waiting for that mood to hit me. You know, I'm like, I want a movie that'll be fun, kind of I can laugh at, and kind of have a good time with. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's because that's the kind of movie it looks like to me. It doesn't look like someone will sit around and I'm going to be like, I need to really see if if they yeah. nailed the Deadpool character or not. <laughs> well, the good, uh, good news is that they pretty much did, I think. Yeah, I mean, when a long time ago when they cast Ryan Reynolds as Deadpool in the uh, as Wade Wilson in the uh, in the X-Men film, I thought, man, that is that is about as close to perfect casting as you can get because in my head I could hear Deadpool as this kind of smart-ass, fourth-wall-breaking yep. Ryan Reynolds type. Yep, yep. So well, for him to and, fight and, for that character for all those years, uh, bravo to him. Uh, yeah. He yeah, no, it. he stuck to his guns on it. Yeah. I've heard a lot of good things about The Mask, which is uh, kind of a new touch they're doing with these comic book films where they're kind of animating the mask. These, you know, Because I know that Spider-Man in the Civil War film, is his mask is uh, quite... Uh, expressive. Expressive, yes. And I know that Deadpool's is quite expressive. Now, that's, that's key, too, because that's a key to the comic, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's uh yeah it's it definitely helps them uh feel a little bit more comic booky A and B I mean like I said it's more expressive you kind of get a little bit more out of the character than just that black face yeah the most difficult thing about Deadpool is explaining to my son that he cannot watch Deadpool ah yeah well yeah that's a big bone of contention for a lot of people for some yeah. reason but I, well, the, it's funny because I, the something about maybe it's something about Rob Liefeld's designs in in particular but kids are really attracted to Deadpool. And and my yeah. son, my son knows nothing about Deadpool, but he just thinks he looks incredibly cool with his two katana blades and yep. and you know we play the Lego Marvel superhero games and he always wants to play you know he doesn't always want to do it but a lot of times he'll pick Deadpool and yep. Deadpool's a smart ass in the games too he loves it you know so well and plus he uh, his face is kind of you know Spider Man esque yep yeah, I mean this is a lot of appeal for children I mean I gotta be honest with you if I was a young man if I was five or six years old I think Deadpool looked pretty awesome too. Oh, yeah. I'd be drawing with all kinds of pouches all over the place and everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Gotta have them pouches. Yeah, fanny packs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The one thing he's not rocking in this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, cool. cool. Um, the other thing I caught uh, was uh, Sergio Santiago's Death Force, a.k.a. Vengeance is Mine. Um, oh, yeah. Little... Yeah, that's, uh, is that the, does that have Dudikoff in it? No, no, no. Uh, this is, uh, I don't know who all's in it. There's um, oh, man. the one guy who's kind of a, a staple of uh, of television back in the uh, the 80s, um, 70s, 80s. I can't think of his name off the top of my head, but uh, it's basically about a guy. It's kind of like a, a, a Filipino exploitation movie, sort of. Okay. Uh, where this guy is, uh, him and his two buddies are... Um, in Vietnam, and uh, they're gonna start. They start getting into the drug trade, and the two guys turn on the one guy, and they basically, you know, attempt to kill him, dump him overboard. He lands on an island where there's two Japanese soldiers who have been there since World War II, hanging out, and he, you know, he takes up the 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 way of the samurai, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, and that's putting it really, you know, that's being generous about it. Yeah, uh, that way is uh, back, trying to sleep as much as possible and drink lots of coffee. 
Oh, oh, you, oh you, mean, you mean actual samurais, my bad. So. Yes. <laughs> uh, not the good kind. Um, uh, and then he goes back and he, uh, he goes looking for them. Um, it's not bad. Um, yeah. it actually, you know, it's, it, it has that kind of appeal that it's, it's bizarrely dark for no real good reason. And I don't mean that in the way that it looks. I mean, in, in like, in like the tone of it. Um, Let's see here. I'm looking, I'm looking for it on IMDb so I can kind of see. What was it called again? Uh, uh Death Force. Oh yeah, Death Force. Uh, AKA, De- uh, Vengeance is Mine. And uh, actually, it was it was one of those things. You know, it's one of the great things about uh, Turner Classic Movies is their their TCM Underground. You know, and their late night programming is is where things like this show up. And, yeah, yeah, uh, no, it's no, great. Thankfully, yeah, 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 great. It's great that it does. Also known as Fighting Mad. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, that. That might have been the the title I saw it under first, probably on a Mill Creek box set, if I'm not mistaken. And Jane Kennedy's in there, and uh, yep, uh, Leon Isaac Kennedy. He was in Louisville not too long ago for the. Uh, um, Muhammad Ali funeral procession. So okay. Part of me wanted to go down and say, "Hey, man, sign my copy of Penitentiary 3 But the other part of me said, "Hey, man, that's kind of tasteless." Muhammad Ali. Passed <laughs> that's <away."> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not the best timing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, James Monroe Englehart. Uh, yeah, and ooh, yeah, Le- Leon Isaac and his wife Jane, or his ex-wife Jane. Hmm. Yeah, I've seen. Uh, I've seen this before. This is kind of. This is kind of back in the early days of uh, refine, uh, kind of researching and finding cult films again yeah. through the internet. This was one that kind of popped up a lot. But yeah, Sergio Santiago, one of my favorite directors. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's not bad. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it, it doesn't. Uh, yeah, it doesn't. Raise, it doesn't really raise the bar, but no, it gets no. the job. <laughs> no, it's kind of cool that you watched uh, you know film from him, and then you watched a film from uh, Eddie Romero in the same week. You got two Filipinos yeah. in there. Yep, yep. It was perfectly by. Uh, by chance too because i was just kind of going through the dvr and I'm, i kind of got i have to start getting through some stuff so i just go to the the oldest thing i have and i I'm, you know go straight through yeah yeah so and it just happened to be the next one up there so but good deal um i watched the uh the two films for the show um and the only other one that i want to talk about would be uh child 44 um which came out in 2015 um it is based on a novel, which I believe is part of a trilogy, um, about a, a uh, ex-MGB agent in Stalinist-era Russia, uh, and it's about it's kind. Of, it, this movie, this movie, I'm assuming was meant to be the first part of you know a series or whatever. Maybe, maybe not. Um, but it, it um, it's loosely, loosely based on. Uh, the uh, the serial killer what what the hell was his name uh, Chick Chickatello yeah Chickatello uh, yeah. yeah it's really loosely based on that um, it, it almost doesn't spend it almost doesn't spend uh, even what a quarter maybe a third of the movie dealing with that part of it the rest of it is about just uh, the the characters and the uh, the setting it's got a phenomenal cast. Yeah. Uh, Tom Hardy, Gary Oldman, Numi Rapace, Joel Kinnaman, Patty Considine, Vincent Cassell, uh, Charles Dance shows up. Um, it's just it, it's uh, it's it's good. It's really pretty bleak. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a little bit of a silver lining at the end of it, but you know it's I like that it's you know just very blunt about yeah. uh, everything that's going on. 
Uh, I know that um, if uh, if even a portion of this is is true, which I, I do believe it is, uh, as far as living back then, I know that I would not have wanted to live in uh, the Soviet Union back then. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, this was a good this was a good little movie. Um, it definitely it's it's it, it, there's a lot more cursing in it than I thought there would be for some reason. <laughs> uh, it's just yeah, man, they're throwing fucks around and all kinds of stuff like Quentin Tarantino's man. Child Forty Four. Uh, more like Rob Zombies, but uh, <laughs> okay, there is a difference between those two. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Rob might have written it, um, <laughs> but uh, but no, this was this was good. It's worth checking out, definitely. Nice. Uh, I meant and, that uh, one uh, kind of skipped past me. I remember, yeah, I remember the cast, and I remember being excited about it, and I remember reading reviews about it, saying it was pretty uh, bleak and you know not very exciting and not very entertaining. And I remember thinking, well, that probably is right down my alley then. So, but I don't know why I just, it got past me. So I'll check it out at some point. Well, I would, I wouldn't say that it's not entertaining, but it's not what you would normally think of when you think of like a thriller. I mean, it's got action in it and the action is, you know, pretty hard. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, the, the people in it are pretty, uh, they're cold. It's a cold. I think that's what would turn off a lot of people is that it's a pretty cold movie. Yeah. Um, there's there's a heartbeat underneath it, but it, you really got to dig for it. Uh, but yeah, no, that was uh, this was definitely worth seeing. I'd recommend it. And uh, that pretty much ends my list for this week. All right, I didn't watch a whole lot. I got a couple things in. I watched uh, Janice. Uh, what what's, what's what was the subtitle of that film? I can't even remember now off the top of my head. The, the Janice Joplin documentary it popped up on the old Netflix. And I didn't really want to watch it, to be honest with you, because I thought I knew everything about Janis Joplin. Uh, so, I, you know, it's, it wasn't, you know, like something I thought, well, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll check this out and and I'll learn something new. I just, I, I didn't think that I would learn anything new because Janis Joplin, like with Jim Morrison and Jimi Hendrix, I, you know, they all kind of died close to one another. And it's kind of this, this kind of... Uh, Urban, I don't know, urban myth or so what to speak, but anyway, it's a strange phenomenon, anyhow. And uh, it's actually pretty good, though. It, it goes into some things. It goes into a lot of her things in her youth I didn't know, and a lot of things about her, kind of personally, I didn't know. Um, yeah, Little Girl Blue, Janice, Little Girl Blue is what it's called, and it's uh, it's pretty, it's it's decent. It's uh, very well made, and uh, they go into kind of her personal letters and things like that. And, it kind of deals with, I think, uh, drug abuse in a kind of smart way. Doesn't, uh, you know, it shows you how hard it is to, you know, to get away. Like she was always constantly trying to stay away and stay busy and stuff. It also kind of gets into the fact that she wasn't the most, by even those standards of, the, of those years, like she wasn't known as the most, and this is a terrible thing to say, but it's just, you know, he goes into this, that she wasn't the most maybe attractive woman. Right. And uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of moments where she grew up. Uh, I think uh, at one point uh, when she was in high school or something or something, she was voted ugliest boy in school or something like that, which is just Jesus. cruel. Yeah. And uh, well, my, yeah, my understanding is that that was something that she really kind of struggled with a lot mm-hmm. in her life. You know, yeah. she kind of got she kind of got depressed over it, and yeah, just struggled with it. You know, just had a very low self esteem. Yeah, yeah. Except when she was performing. If she was performing, she was very happy and stuff. But everything else around her life was very much uh, very different. So anyway, um, worth a watch. If you're a big fan of Janice, then you'll definitely uh, enjoy it because it goes into a lot of her music, a lot of the creation of her music and stuff. 
how um, how would you describe the uh, the style of it? I mean, do they play pretty straight or do they get uh, do they play around with like a lot of? I know the the thing I've seen a lot of um, more in, in biopic kind of documentaries uh, is they play around with like a lot of animation and no. not so much recreations, or, yeah. but uh, they just really start to play around with things. Just and it almost feels like they do it just to you know have something to do no, rather than to tell the story. Yeah. But. I thought that might go this way, but it didn't. It, it kind of, I mean, she reads the letters. Uh, Cat Power, the uh, the musician, she reads the letters. She sounds a lot like Janice when she talks. And she, uh, ooh, I wheezed a little bit there when I took an inhale. That's uh, getting past the sore throat. The, uh, they they kind of just show footage, and maybe they'll show some pictures of her and her youth, or they'll show some stuff from her her childhood and stuff like that. Because there's a lot of childhood pictures and photographs. And they talk to her family, her, one of her sisters, and, and some of her childhood friends and some of the people that are still alive that, you know, play music with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, they talk to them. Bob Weir's in there and uh, from Grateful Dead and stuff. So there's people with a lot of great stories. And and um, it, it's not – I don't recall any animation. But, you know, there's so much of that is used in documentaries nowadays as kind of a uh, – sometimes a crutch uh, that, you know, uh, it could have been in there and I wouldn't have seen it. But I, I, I don't really recall any animation. I've re- re- there's so much footage of – because she was such a like shooting star for such a short amount of time, uh, they, they, they caught a lot of footage of her, and uh, most of it's footage you've probably seen before. Um, but they kind of mix in a lot of moments of her, kind of behind the scenes, as much stuff as they could grab. Some footage I'd never seen, where she kind of you know makes guffaw faces at the camera and stuff like that. I didn't know she did that stuff. I always see the same stuff, which is her really getting emotional when she sings, really getting into it. But you see a lot of her kind of having fun, a lot of her kind of. Uh, getting frustrated when the rest of the band's not on the same page with her and vice versa. So some stuff I didn't see. So I think it's very well handled, to be honest with you. It's very well made. That's probably one of the reasons why I liked it as much. It didn't seem as cookie-cutter right. as uh, some of those documentaries can seem. So, right, right. Yeah, it's definitely yeah, worth a watch. The, yeah, they seem to – well, I, I'm not going to get off on a rant, but they seem to a lot of times more often want to be more about the sizzle than the steak. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them, so I, I kind of get turned off on on a lot of uh, more modern documentaries. Not a lot. I mean, there's still you know great documentarians out there making great movies about great subjects. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that that's kind of like the, the growing trend. Yeah. With the especially with how many we're we're seeing now that have to deal with uh, you know the art world and cinema and music and you know just uh, yeah. performers in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And it might be in you know it might be an easier type of you know they can use that kind of standard animation to to finish the film i mean i know you know it's hard to get films made so one thing about documentaries is that you can you know you you can be a two or three man crew in this modern era and get one made and if the subject matter is good you made a pretty good film you can get it into festivals and things like that so you can land some interviews and stuff it's one of the few genres where you know me and you and will and a few of the other guys we could get together and say hey guys we're getting you know we're kind of spread out across the united states I got so and so in Pennsylvania. I need interviewed. I got so and so in this area. I need interviewed. Let's you know, let's get our little. Let's, let's just use an iPhone, for instance. Let's just grab our iPhones and get a light. And uh, you shoot this one. You shoot that one. We'll kind of blend it all together. And I'll just use some stand, a standard animation animation I got in one of my programs on my computer. And we'll mix it all together. And we'll put a documentary out. So there is a, there is a lot of that going on because I think filmmaking has become so democratized. I think that's what you're seeing a lot in documentaries. So. Really, yeah, the for subject, better or worse. Yeah, for better or worse, and some of the, some, some of it comes down to the talent of the filmmaker, or it comes down to the subject matter. Uh, 
but it's usually one or the other. I mean, because if if the if the filmmaker's not great, then it doesn't kind of shine through. And if the subject matter is not interesting, um, which I think anybody can be interesting, and that kind of falls on the director. I mean, they can make a documentary on, I don't know, one of the leads in uh, in uh, Rage of Honor. They could uh, the the bad guy in Rage of Honor and uh, Havelock, and they could make a documentary on that actor and and if you know you follow the right path you can have an interesting story because everybody has interesting stories but then again they could just follow the standard path which is this is what havelock did next and then you know, of course that's not the actor's name but i'm just i like saying havelock <laughs> will travel <laughs> yeah havelock will travel um but yeah it's good check it out uh the only other thing i watched uh what's the movie just did? i didn't check this in or anything but what the movie just did with my son saw uh, and when my son and my wife actually and saw Finding Dory, which is uh, it's it's good. It's not uh, it's not as good as Finding Nemo, but uh, Finding Nemo was kind of a kind of a pivotal moment, I think, in animation. It does look amazing. Uh, these animated movies, I've always said this, and I'll keep, continue to say that. Th- say this, not that. Um, you know, I, I don't know at what level and these these computer animated films are going to stop looking like computer animated films and just start looking like films. Yeah. Um, there's a short at the beginning, and, and all these shorts that are at the beginning of these Pixar films, I always think to myself, 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 not myself, sometimes I do wonder. All of you. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, well, how much more realistic does it have to look before we, you know, at some point just stop using actors altogether? Uh, because, I mean, there's some amazing stuff in this short. Called, this short, I think it's called Piper, at the beginning of this one, dealing with uh, sort of an ocean bird and some uh, water and stuff. And, I mean, it looks unbelievable the how realistic it looks i mean i know we we've all kind of said man look at the water you know but this one <laughs> was the first time in a couple of years i've been like geez look at that water <laughs> it's it's well yeah animated. how often do you say that about uh, about computer animation yeah the, the thing the things that it gets my opinion on computer animation is the things that it gets right are typically like hard things like planes um mm-hmm. landscapes buildings that sort of thing uh, when it comes to things that are, are moving or you know constantly changing, like water, fire, smoke, that sort of thing, it tends to really stand out as being CG. And I think that's kind of one of the reasons that I always have a hard time with um, with the overuse of it uh, in terms of characters, mm-hmm. is because my my opinion is that um, in real life there's always a jitter to your your body. You know, there's things yeah. that the camera's picking up that you know a yeah. computer goes from A to B because they're they're animating from A to B with like a through line that the computer fills in. Right. And you know, it's almost like it's like a perfect line. It's like a perfect arc, and it looks more fake that way. I mean, they can get the skin, you know, every pore of uh, of skin and hair and everything else on a on a character, and it looks great. But the minute that they start moving. It just instantly stands out as being uh, computer computer animated. Not always. There's been some really, there's been some really uh, outstanding um, work in that department. But typically, it, it it stands out a little bit more as just being uh, just being not real. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think they, you you could go down a whole rabbit hole yeah. of uh, of talking about that. And you know exactly. where do we where do we where do we mix the two? Why don't why don't they just make everything cartoons at this point? <laughs> yeah. That sort of thing. Especially yeah. with the, the big uh, blockbusters and that. Why not just animate everything? Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's that's the, the, the basics of my opinion. But, uh, you know, listen, I'm, I'm an animation guy myself. You know, uh-huh. love it. Love anime. Love uh, a lot of the, the Pixar stuff. Um, so, yeah, I'm for it. Yeah. The, the interesting thing about animation is the closer it gets to reality... The more I always wanted to kind of get back to stylized animation because well, yeah, that's yeah. what I kind of like about animation is the fact that you can 
you can be stylized, right? It kind of gets in. It kind of gets into comics. I mean, yeah, I think it's great that some artists are amazing at drawing the human body, but I kind of, you know, I kind of want. I'm just Sam Keith, you know. I'm, I'm yeah. I like, yeah, well, we're, yeah, I Jack distortion. Kirby. I mean, yeah, I want distortion. You know, I want dynamism. Yeah, I want, I want that because it, it gives it a flavor. Whereas, you know, and this, this again, like I say, this looks amazing. It does have uh, very pretty much a standard story. Uh, I think what well, the thing is that's kind of weird about this one is I think that Finding Nemo felt like it was a grand adventure uh, across the ocean. This one goes across the ocean too, but. In Nemo, they're kind of, you know, they end up on shore. They end up in a fish tank situation. It's pretty crazy. This one's pretty crazy, too, but they end up in a marine institute and stuff. Uh, there is a great performance from Ed O'Neill as an octopus named Hank uh, nice. that is fantastic. And it's one of those things where, you know, octopuses are always looking to get out of situations. There's so many videos on uh, the Internet nowadays of people putting octopuses inside jars and octopuses unscrewing jars and everything. They're, so, they're such crafty creatures. Mm-hmm. And what I love about, you know... The, the movie is they kind of, you know, they kind of joke about how Hank's always trying to get away. Like, the octopus is out again. Uh, somebody looking for the octopus. The octopus has made escape again. The octopus is out. And, and it's pretty funny because Ed O'Neill's, you know, he's always trying to get to this magical place called Cleveland. And, uh, <laughs> whereas he thinks that he won't have to go back to the ocean because he's scared of the general population in the ocean and stuff. So he's nice. pretty he, he's pretty great. And uh, there's also... Uh, Two sea line performances from Idris Elba and Dominic West playing very much uh, kind of uh, <laughs> you know the the, the kind of uh, London type uh, gangster types you know or and it's pretty great you know they're like what are you talking about you, have you lost your marbles you know <laughs> uh, you know they're they're great as these two seals fluke and rudder I would love a film of just fluke and rudder these two these two sea lines because they're hilarious and there's actually a great moment where they. Uh, there's always another sea lion trying to get on the rock that they sleep on, and they they're always like off 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 off. You know they, they start doing that. And I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. That's why sea lions say they make that noise. <laughs> I mean, that's not exactly true, obviously, but it's pretty great. Uh, did uh, did Brooks and DeGeneres come back for this? Uh, yeah, Brooks is in it, which I didn't okay. know. I didn't know Albert Brooks was in it. Uh, I don't know why I was surprised Albert Brooks was in it. I mean. I just thought maybe you know he might not have any interest, but you know it's, right. I'm sure it's an easy paycheck and stuff. He's great and he's great in it too. He, one of the things I don't think he gets credit for. He's a really great uh, voice actor. Absolutely. Uh, Look at his Hank Scorpio on The Simpsons. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's he's really great at that. And and one of the thing, other things, Albert Brooks. Albert Brooks is is genuinely funny. Like he doesn't try very hard to be funny. And no, yeah, he's got a facility for it. Yeah, yeah he absolutely. just says like little things, and you like you laugh at him because it's just like you know, that's actually pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> and there's he's got a lot of moments like that. Ellen's 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 Ellen, but she is quite uh, likable as the Dory character. And there's very much a family element to the story and stuff, and it's nice. Uh, again, a lot of a lot of good performances. Eugene Levy in there, like I said, uh, Bill Hader's in there. You'll hear Bill Hader's in there at some point. Bill Hader does a lot of voice work nowadays, uh, but I think Bill Hader's actually a really good actor. And a great cameo from Sigourney Weaver, uh, which you got to see the film to kind of get the joke of that. So. Yeah, it's very well done. It's made a lot of money. I, I can't be surprised. I mean, uh, the kid, my son loved it. Uh, I don't think he loved it as much as like he did like Zootopia and like Angry Birds, which had you know Angry Birds had a lot of you know poop and fart and pee jokes. Which you know, I, I, hey, when I was five hey. and six, that's what I wanted too. Hey, I'm I'm forty three and I still like that. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, he was. You could tell his mind was kind of blown sometimes. You could tell what some of the oceanscapes and some of the the kind of large panoramic 
uh, shots. There's actually they go inside this gigantic aquarium at one point, and if you've been to these aquariums, you know they're pretty amazing. And here's this animated version of this aquarium, and it looks just as great as going to these gigantic aquariums. And I mean, it just I mean, there was moments where I was just like, whoa, this is. Again, it's this, you know, it's modern animation. Every time you go to see one of these things, you're like, okay, well, this is going to look pretty great. And then the next thing you know, you come out of there thinking, geez, can it look any better than that? <laughs> and sure enough, I mean, I saw Minions a year ago or two years ago, and there were some moments in Minions where I was like, my God, this animation is amazing. Uh, it can't get much better than this. And then here I am watching Findadori, and I'm like, man, this this kind of makes Minions look kind of weak. So and that's just a couple of years. So I mean that 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 the the growth rate of these films is uh, is pretty amazing. Um, you, know, I'm, you know, like I said, it's it's not a barn burner, but uh, and not and not as good as Finding. I think Finding Nemo had a much more pure story mm-hmm. uh, and through line, not in a unique story. This one has very much a similar story, um, but I just don't think the the grand sense of adventures there, and unfortunately, because some of the other the other exterior characters are so interesting they don't get to spend enough time with them there's a there's a whale shark and there's a a beluga whale that's pretty funny uh played by ty barrel uh and there's a, a whale shark i can't remember who that's played by she can't see very well she's nearsighted these little kind of disney pixar type moments the whale shark's nearsighted the beluga whale he thinks his uh sonar doesn't work so he you know he's playing sick he won't go back to the ocean because he he can't get his sonar work he call, they call it the world's greatest pair of eyeglasses the uh, beluga whale sonar and uh, he finally gets it working again, and it's pretty funny. And they're making fun of his big head and things like that. I mean, just kind of stuff that makes kids laugh and little moments that Pixar is really good at. But Hank is really the octopus is really the standout kind of creation from this one. And uh, Ed O'Neill, uh, just a f- fantastic job. I mean, Ed O'Neill doesn't get enough credit for how good an actor he is. No, no, no. He, uh, you know, done some great TV work, obviously. For those who don't know, he's Al Bundy. If uh, you don't know who I'm talking about, but he's also he's also a fantastic actor, very very good character actor. So uh, he's great in this. His his voice acting is amazing as Hank the Octopus. So yeah, my son loved Hank the Octopus, and I loved Hank the Octopus. So yeah, you, you'd almost think that the, that Ed O'Neill would be kind of like a, a Patrick Warburtony kind of of uh, voice actor, and how popular he yeah, is because yeah. he's just got there, there's a certain character to his voice. Yeah, like, like Warburton, that you know, it's, it's distinct. Yeah. And it could fit so many, uh, so many different uh, characters. War, Warburton's is almost too extinct, uh, too extinct, too uh, distinct. Because at this point, even my son knows who Patrick Warburton, Warburton is, and he doesn't really know actors by their voice only. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Well, him, yeah, and H. John Benjamin too. Yeah, yeah. He'll hear, uh, he'll hear Warburton and just be like, "Oh, that's so and so. Oh, that's so and so." And of course, Warburton's in. Uh, we play the Skylanders video games, and Warburton's in there playing a character named Flynn. Okay. And and he always likes to eat uh, tamales and and stuff like that, and so they're gonna really gotta have some tamales, you know. And, <laughs> and we kind of joke around about enchiladas, you know. We kind of <laughs> joke. So he'll hear him say something else in another movie, like uh, Peabody and Sherman. He'll be like, "Oh, that's the guy that likes enchiladas." <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, "Yeah." So you know, he he knows exactly who he is because he just has such a distinct, even to the point where he sees the national car rental commercials. And he sees him uh, when he grabs the coffee. He's like, perfect 173 degrees. You know, talking, uh, the Patrick Warburton talking. He's like, is that the guy that does the voice? I'm like, yeah, that's the guy. So, <laughs> so very interesting. Um, but, he, yeah, he does have a voice made for uh, for uh, anime. And so does Ed O'Neill. But uh, hopefully he'll get more work in this field uh, because he's really great. And I'd, I'd like to see a Hank the Octopus uh, film, to be honest with you, because the character's that great. I mean, uh, he's neurotic. 
uh, I just think they really nail the idea of the octopus trying to always get away. Because if you know anything about octopi, uh, I didn't know I get to say that this morning. Uh, they always seem to be trying to avoid conflict as much as possible, unless they have to eat or something. They're always trying to get away. I mean, you know, you can watch a thousand uh, Sea World documentaries, and people are always following an octopus. It's not like you go to an octopus and they come out and say, "Hey, what's going on?" Yeah, you know, sometimes they will, and then sometimes they'll fuck you up. But they they just they 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 tend to be like, "Hey, you know, go leave me alone, get away, get away. I don't want to be talked, I don't want to be touched, I don't want to be <laughs> you know, get away." And they really kind of nail that. Uh, he just wants to be left alone, so. Uh, and get back, and like you said, he wants to get to Cleveland because uh, supposedly no kids will touch him. Like, at one point, they end up in the the touch tank at this aquarium. He's like, "No, you don't ever want to go in the touch tank." <laughs> he goes, "I lost a tentacle." Because I think he's only got seven arms in the movie. Because uh, Dory calls him a a sept what a sept a septopus a septopus I think is what she calls him. Uh, a septopus? A, what is it? A seven, not eight? Uh, so it's not an octo, it's a septa. Whatever. whatever. She calls him that because he lost a tentacle. I thought they regrow their tentacles, though. I don't know. Maybe I'm. Uh, I don't think they do, actually. No. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's almost like the, the, what was it, the quintopus or whatever it was from, yeah, uh, yeah, it yeah. came from beneath the sea. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, he's a, he's a damaged, uh, damaged goods, too. So he's, he's got some psychological stuff going on. All right. All right, we don't have a whole lot of time to finish this recording, so I'm going to cut that off there. Uh, we will uh, take a short break. We're going to come back. What do you want to talk about first? You want to talk about Rage of Honor? Uh, or you want to talk uh, about... It's, yeah, uh, Dealer's Choice. Dealer's Choice. Well, we'll just go chronologically then. We'll just do uh, okay. Black Mama, White Mama. Okay. Come back and talk a little women in prison. <laughs> we'll be back right after this. This is Red Brown. Just- You're listening to Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Bring me to Dakota! All right, so our first film of the evening, the morning, whenever you're listening to this wonderful program, is uh, Black Mama, White Mama, 1973, directed by Eddie Romero. Um, I believe this may have been produced. I, you know, I don't know if it was. Was it this produced by Roger Corman? It feels like it was. Maybe Sam was Arkov, maybe Arkovers, American International Pictures. I know that. Right, right. Um, yeah, I don't know offhand. Yeah. So. Uh, I Most likely yeah, distributed it, if nothing else. Yeah. It's also got another great title called Chains of Hate, which is pretty great. Um, um, I don't know. And this is one of those ones that it's, it's shame on me in a weird way. It's very much a classic exploitation film and maybe one of the best of its genre, surely. Uh, women in prison films uh, slash black exploitation, you could say. Uh, it's kind of got a mix of both those and it, it kind of covers both of those very well, I think. But the uh, it, not really talked about that much. It's it's weird. It's kind of one of those ones that kind of gets unpassed. Uh, you know, it doesn't get talked about like with the Big Bird Cage or like uh, Caged Heat or right. or even some of the other Pam Greer films like Sheepy Baby and Foxy Brown stuff. And um, 
I don't know, uh, big dollhouse, things like that. It kind of it seems to me anyway. I'm not saying it doesn't, but it seems to me like it kind of gets overlooked sometimes. And well, I think that it kind of sits in that middle ground between uh, women in prison films and black exploitation. Mm-hmm. So you know, it just kind of it kind of skirts the line between the two. Yeah, because for a lot of those who don't know, Pam Greer pretty much started out. It seems like in the women in prison film more so than the black exploitation realm. Yes, and uh, because of her popularity over you know ten or fifteen years. Um, I think the two kind of get roped in together sometimes and sold like that. I think that's why this title might also be Black Mama, White Mama because it's much more. A, that's much more a black exploitation title than a women in prison title. Chains of Hate, yeah. actually, the alternate title is definitely a much more a a, a, a what should we call it? A, a women in prison uh, mm-hmm. title. So anyway, uh, yeah, directed by Eddie Romero. I think I said that. A very famous uh, exploitation filmmaker, Filipino filmmaker. Um, Eddie was interesting. He he never really he he always wanted to make uh, prestige pictures. Um, and anytime he would get interviewed, people wouldn't ask him about his prestige pictures. They'd always ask him about you know Beast of the Yellow Knight or Blood Devils, Mad Doctor of Blood Island, those kind of things. Uh, they never would ask him about his his films that he was so proud of. Um, but you know, hey, that's that's the way it works sometimes. You know, I mean, uh. Just because you know, I mean, I've uh, I could dime dime a dozen that you could meet uh, filmmakers who want you to talk about the stuff they're most proud of, but the thing they're probably always going to be remembered for is the thing that they, uh, you know, it was raw energy and something they started out with. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, how often do you hear Stallone talk about uh, the Italian stallion? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you go. I mean, Stallone would tell you that you know his best acting was in, uh, uh, you know, he'll tell you probably Stop Her by Mama Shoot or. <laughs> one of his one of his comedic pictures is probably what he'll say because he he loves his comedic stuff, yeah. but uh, you know he's just trying to get away from the fact that you know he was tailor made for the Rocky and the Rambo character and all that stuff. So he's just one of those things, and I'm sure he's just tired of talking about it. I mean, like like anybody would be. You get interviewed a thousand times a year, and you get asked about the same things. I'm guessing you probably wouldn't. And I'm sure Eddie Romero, in the back end of his life, was interviewed a thousand you know by a lot of film lovers, and they always wanted to talk about you know. His exploitation pictures, not his, in his eyes, his uh, prestige pictures. So, right. Uh, did you want to take a lead on this one, or do you want me? Or uh, I do. Yeah, I could take the lead on this one. Okay. Um, let's see here. You got, you got the fresher eyes on both of these, so I, I watched them actually a week ago. Uh, so hopefully, I'll remember quite a bit. <laughs> uh, one of the. Uh, the first things that stands out in this movie uh, as you're watching the, the credits roll is a certain name uh, which pops up, and that is one Zaldi's Norshak, <laughs> uh, who, yeah. if, if you see the name alone, I mean, it's just fun to say. Yeah. Uh, but he winds up playing Ernesto, the um, the revolutionary leader. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's just one of those funny things. It's a Z, double Z uh, name and a whole lot of consonants. Um yeah, he was uh, evidently a pretty big actor in the Philippines for a little while. Well, he he looks familiar. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what else I can think of him from, but he's one of those guys that just has that kind of face that uh, that really stands out to you. You've probably you know, seen him in something else. I mean, I'm looking through his filmography. He worked a lot. He worked from 1952 until, oh, 1997. So when he passed wow. away in 2002. So he uh, wasn't very old when he passed away either. So he must have, uh, well, he's, yeah, no, he worked from his early 20s. Yeah, evidently he was a... Bit of a matinee type uh, star in uh, 
Yeah, he kind of has that underneath all the hair. You could kind of see that he's kind of yeah. he has that sort of uh, attractive, sort of yeah, attractive man underneath all that. Uh, something kind of sexy about Zaldi. Yeah, there you go. Take a little Zaldi. Put a little Zaldi on my steak. Jose Rizaldi Shortsnack, born in Manila, December 30, 1940. So yeah, he was Filipino. There you go. He's, he's yeah, he is. He's he's got a nice. Uh, he doesn't pop up in the movie until about twenty minutes in or so, but he's got a yeah, nice presence. A yeah, nice presence when he's there. Mm-hmm. Um, it has uh, the film has an original story co-authored by John Jonathan Demi. Yeah, who of course went on to you know Silence of the Lambs and uh, other um, bigger, let's say bigger films, quote unquote. No, I'm just kidding. They were bigger films. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, he was uh, he was also he was one of those guys who started off with the uh, Corman and uh, I think the first movie that he directed. And I know that somebody is going to lose their mind when I say this was uh, what was a Cage Heat or Chain Heat uh, was one of the first movies that he directed. Ch- Chain Heat, right? Chain Heat. Okay. Maybe uh, uh, now now I got to check. There's so many right. there's so many heat movies. In, <laughs> yeah. In terms of, uh, yeah, we're gonna catch a lot of heat for not knowing our heat. <laughs> um, let me let me double. <laughs> Let me double let me double check that for you because uh we don't want to catch too much heat here. <laughs> Chained or otherwise. Uh, yeah. He uh yeah, for those who don't know, yeah, Jonathan Demi went on to the world of prestige pictures. Oh, yeah. That's what he's remembered as, but yeah, he started out I think that's what Eddie Romero wanted to be remembered as, but again, yeah, he started out as uh yeah, caged heat. Caged heat there you go. heat. So he also wrote Fighting Mad, which you watched. Uh yeah. so no, that's a different fighting mad. That's this is the no, Peter. no. That was the one with Peter Fonda. That's the one with Peter uh, yeah. Fonda. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, actually, I wrote that one up for the blog a while back. Oh, so. that's right, that's right. Uh, yeah, and that's that's actually that's a pretty good one too. Yeah. Uh, so we're seeing. Um, let's see. Uh, the uh, they has, have women's rehab. A, we should say Jonathan Demme, uh, one of the great filmmakers. Really, he has a yeah. hard time getting movies made nowadays. He's working on a Justin Timberlake concert film right now. That's the world he lives in now. So, which is amazing. You would think with the the cachet that he has from. From just Silence of the Lambs alone, you would think that he would be able to to get almost anything. The back. last thing I can remember that he that he made that got you know a good amount of buzz was probably Rachel Rachel getting married, which back in the beginning of this podcast I remember made my top thirty list. Okay, uh, but after that he made uh, he's made almost all documentaries and TV shows. He made a film called A Master Builder. Which I never saw. Don't even know what the hell it is. It's got uh, Wallace Shawn in it, Julie Haggerty. Oh. So it's obviously a very low budget, uh, kind of small picture. And he made Ricky in the Flash. That was that kind of Meryl Streep rock and roll movie. Oh yeah, that was just uh, that was just recently, but last year, wasn't it? Yeah, but I mean, he has a hard time getting films made now. Yeah, that's that's kind of that's kind of well, it's not kind of. It's definitely sad. It is uh, sad. I mean, that's that's the that's the world we live in now. I mean, there's very few of the great filmmakers. I mean, I can only name maybe a handful. Like Scorsese, uh, ooh man, Scorsese might actually be the only one of that generation I can name <laughs> that can get a uh, big movie. They can actually get something bankrolled yeah, that'll that'll yeah. get into a movie theater like wide release. Yeah, him, him, Spielberg, which you know, arguably, but I mean, Spielberg does come from that generation. Uh, although I don't think he's really interested in that anymore. In no, any way, but I don't think even if he got, I don't even know if he'd get a job like that now. Anyway, he's too difficult to work with. I think Hollywood's more interested in. You know, yes, man. They're not interested in people yeah. like that. But, but for some yeah. reason, Scorsese, he manages to he he manages to get it done. I don't know what he does, but I don't know. Whatever. Uh, well, I think he's as much of a, a salesman as he is a showman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he does it. Yeah. He does it well. Yeah, oh, well, very well. Um, 
they don't have prisons in uh, in the Philippines. They have women's rehab centers, uh, which is something that always just you know it's one of those things that just stands out to you. It's like why not just call it a prison? It's a prison. <laughs> yeah. oh, it's worse than a prison when you think about it. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean it's, <laughs> it does go one step beyond, but uh, yeah, it's definitely. I don't know what they're rehabbing. I always um, I always thought to myself, you know, when I was a kid, I watched a lot of these movies because you know, again, you could go to the video store and you can rent these movies, and for two reasons, I rent these movies for nudity. That was reason number one, but trust me, there was no second reason before that. That was always the main reason. And the second reason was, uh, you know, I, I kind of wanted to always be scared of ever going to prison. So I always thought that, you know, overseas prisons, Turkish prisons, uh, uh, Filipino prisons and stuff, I thought that's kind of like what the American prison system was like. Uh, some ways, nowadays, the, the Filipino prisons almost look like vacations compared to what I've read about American prisons, but... Uh, I'm, I'm petrified to go to prison. I just yeah. yeah, yeah, petrified. I mean, I don't think kids know enough about prison nowadays. Maybe if they did, uh, you know, some kids wouldn't misbehave as bad. Yeah, yeah. Prison you was think. a scary place. I mean, I remember seeing was it midnight? Uh, was it midnight special? That, what, no, what, no, midnight. Uh, midnight Express. Midnight, midnight Special. <laughs> That's a, a recent movie I've been trying to watch. The uh, the Midnight Special. Uh, TV show. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I remember uh, seeing that and thinking, that again, another call back to Paul Smith. And uh, I remember seeing that and thinking, man, I never want to go to prison in another country. <laughs> Scary as I don't it want is. To go to prison here. Mm. Um, one of the first, uh, well, the way that we're introduced to the two characters is a, a great little scene when they're in the bus on the way in there. Uh, and you get that frustrated look between uh, Pam, well, uh, her name in the in the movie is Lee. And the Margaret Markov character, the white mama of the title, yeah. uh, is uh, plays a woman by the name of Karen. Yeah. And you know, in the in the bus on the way there, you get this little look of, of frustration between the two of them. They just kind of you know give each other the once over, size each other up, and it uh, it's a great little economy uh, of setup. Just two shots, you know everything you need to know about how these two you know feel about each other. Um, and it, it, it uh, kind of reinforces the the theme uh, of the film uh, right there. Yep. So I mean, give it up for uh, give it up for Romero. You know, he, he had uh, he had it down pat. Um, the one thing, and I think you would agree with me on this, and I think that it's universally true: uh, women jailbirds are always hot. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> those things. It's yeah. you go to a women's prison, and they are just it's loaded with hot chicks. <laughs> I, know. Um, I know. I often wonder if women watch male prison films and think the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Man, male prison films are so hot. Yeah, because <laughs> you know I'm watching male prison films. I'm like, geez, that guy's scary as hell, man. He, Everybody's scarred up and hairy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but the uh, it is true. It is true. There are a lot of uh, a lot of the extra characters in the film. They're all. You know the group shower scene is is quite pleasant to watch oh, if yeah. you're if you're male. Um, yeah, and speaking of that, you get the uh, the lesbian garden gar- gardens. The les- uh, lesbian garden. Yeah, Man. right. <laughs> I would take a trip to one of those. Um, <laughs> yeah. You get the lesbian uh, guards and the matrons, and that's where the the shower scene there. Uh, there's a particular uh, matron Densmore played by let me see Lynn Borden. Uh, who has a little fun sitting and standing in the uh, the broom closet there with the peephole? Oh yeah, uh, and she really uh, she she goes to town yeah. uh, on herself. What well, uh, might argue would be the most obvious broom closet <laughs> peephole. I mean, it's it's this big box sitting right outside the shower. 
It's just somebody got a Dremel and made a little square. Yeah. It's not like it's not the size of your eye. It's like the size of half your face. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe they just put like a, maybe there's a vent on the other side that we're not seeing. Yeah. Uh, just to disguise it. Um, but um, yeah, you get that. I mean, then that's one of those things. I mean, every there's always that homosexual angle when you get into uh, mm-hmm. prison movies, whether they be male or, or female. And that, uh, yeah, and there's always the, the aggressive, and then there's the gentle, right? There's always yes. there's always that scary kind of rapey one, yep. which is the kind of Lynn Borden type. Kind of, you know, you pet your face and you know, yeah. brush your hair and stuff. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, there's always the other one, the one that's uh, yeah, that'll take care of you. Yep, yep. Protect you, and that's actually that's actually one of the more interesting things uh, here is that there's the the two uh, lesbian matrons, but they're also in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and you know it's it's kind of a nice little a nice little detail, a nice little angle that uh, that stands out um, on this is you know just being a little bit more developed than just the standard, you know, uh, two lesbians you know who just want to you know uh, beat uh, beat women and. And basically molest them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I like that. Uh, you know, it's it's a little bit something extra. Um, uh, along the lines of uh, women jailbirds always being hot is that you know showers in jail are always fun. Um, yeah. As we got from the the scene where I don't know wh- why a person would turn a hose on when you're in the shower, um, but the, the one girl does, and she's squirting uh, squirting everybody down with it, even yeah. though they're already, they're already getting wet, but. I think what's interesting about prison films in general, again, there seems to be, and again, I'm not calling us out, or, or the male species in, in particular, the male sex, but women's shower scenes have a totally different feel than the male shower scenes do. And now I am looking at it from a male perspective. I will I will freely admit that. Yeah. Um, but well, Male shower scenes are usually more about you know vulnerability and, and threat, right? Yeah, yeah, because that's where some stuff goes down. Yeah. It should kind of be the same thing. It should technically, though, be the same thing in a female prison film. But for some strange reason, it always kind of turns into, like you said, it turns into the water hose moment. Yeah. Or it turns into this kind of frolicking yep. kind of thing. Again, now, now look, this, these are women in prison films. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that they're looking for <laughs> the most tasteful way to show uh, a group shower scene. I mean, obviously, I realize this is an exploitation film and... You know, the people that are going to see this movie at the drive-in or at the uh, 42nd Street Theater back in the early 70s, they're going to see it because there's tits and ass. I mean, I'm not stupid. I mean, that, that, that's what – I mean, we spend a whole podcast talking about essentially tits and ass. That's what it's all about, but uh, not not for us. I'm just saying that's what exploitation films, a lot of them are about, tits, ass, violence, you name it. That, you know, those are all the, the quintessential – as my wife says – when I was watching The Mutilator the other day in the living room, which I don't typically watch movies in the living room, but the kids were asleep and I'm watching The Mutilator in the living room. She's like, you watch the most fucked up movies. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, you know what? I, I kind of do. I kind of do. I kind of, you know, I, I sit around and I, I watch a lot of fucked up material. And, you know, obviously I'm, I'm a grown man. I, none, of, none of it bothers me. I don't sit around thinking I'm going to go out and do these things to other people because, you know, I'm not that type of person. But, you know, I... I I do look for fucked up material. That's what I look for, and I think most of us genre fans do. And uh, absolutely. So, but yeah, I often wonder if I. I, I kind of wish, in a way, we could have had a, a female perspective. I'd like to have maybe on the show sometime. I'd like to bring like a female film critic on, female one of our buddies, female. Yeah, that'd be good uh, to kind of get their take on the women in prison thing. Because mm-hmm. uh, I'd be curious sometimes. Because there's moments now as a grown man where I almost feel. Not guilt, but 
I guess the word is curious, maybe more than anything else, is as to how some of our more our female minded compatriots think about these type of films and what they think of them. So, hmm. uh, because uh, they are, they can be seen, I think, or interpreted as misogynistic films, I think, very easily. Uh, yeah, very, very easily. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Although I think they can also be seen as political films too, so it's a very it's a very touchy subject. Well, they are, especially yeah, especially uh, the ones in the Philippines because of I guess the background. And I'm not going to even pretend that I know uh, <laughs> a lick of any yeah. of the the political background yeah. of the Philippines. Yeah, Todd, we didn't get a lot um, of sleep, man. Let's not go too deep here. Yeah, uh, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean it definitely is there, and actually that leads into you know one of the things that that they have in all of them, or, or at least in the vast majority of them, is. Uh, those sort of uh, working in the field uh, shots, uh, scenes of the girls, you know, just kind of slaving away, quite literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here they have them uh, apparently doing the weed whacking uh, for the the local community and or the rehab center. Yeah. Um, but you get that it's kind of that uh, slave imagery, but it's based on gender. You know, these the women are kind of being put down and uh, that sort of thing, even though they're being uh, overseen by other women. Mm-hmm. Uh, these particular women are, you know, kind of being uh, oppressed, and I th- I do think that that's in there for uh, for something other than um, just being a some, a way to um, facilitate. Fa- oh, good God, it's early. Uh, facilitate, um, you know, other things happening in the in the plot. Um, so just a little aside there. Uh, you get uh, a nice little food cat fight, food slash cat fight. I'm not gonna not a a cat made out of food or anything um, <laughs> yeah. in the uh, in the cafeteria, uh, which leads to um, which leads to Karen and Lee winding up and spending a day in the in the oven, or as Brother Martin would say, in the box. Yeah, the hot box. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and this an, is another this Jonathan Demi pin picture. I think you wrote a movie called The Hot Box. Uh, you know, I think you're right. I think you did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's that's the first part where these these two women start to bond a little bit mm-hmm. they still don't really they still de- they still definitely have their own uh agendas uh and you know the way that they look at things like um karen is a revolutionary and uh, that's where the uh the just Zenor- snack oh god uh <laughs> <laughs> character comes in is because he was with uh she was with uh him and the the revolutionaries yeah. up until she got caught and the whole reason that they have her in prison in the first place which I don't think we we synopsized the the movie outside of just saying that it's a women in prison film. And I don't oh, think yeah. we necessarily really need to, but no, I guess um, you don't. I mean, I, I I'll I'll do it right now. I mean, uh, two troublemaking well, female. Basically, it's basically a play on the defiant yeah. ones, right? Yeah, it is. Two uh, troublemaking female women. prisoners. Uh, one a revolutionary, the other a form harem girl. Can't seem to get along. They're chained together and extradited for safekeeping. And we can get into more of. I think that's the basic plots enough. For all yeah. you need, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it's essentially what you said. It's basically a play on that. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, but yes, yeah, so she was a revolutionary, and Pam uh, Lee, the Lee character, was uh, uh, into the the. I think she was a prostitute, uh, but she was with uh, in the drug trade with uh, another character who will show up in a little bit, uh, played by one Vic Diaz, and um, so the two women just they definitely have their own agendas and they definitely have their own you know, point of view on what they want to, how they want to get the hell out of here and what they want to do once they do finally escape. Uh, spoiler: They they escape. Um, yeah. But um, a- another thing that uh, that uh, I found kind of interesting was that they they kill uh, it, during the prison escape. They uh, they wind up killing one of the 
one of the the guards or they kill another character uh with the the chains on their wrists which is another one of those imagery images you know kind of like the ones with the work in the field and all that other sort of thing yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, it, you know it, it, i do think it's pointed imagery i don't i don't think it's there just because it looks good although it does look good in the in the terms of an exploitation movie mm-hmm. um that's my opinion on that um but I, it's just uh, one of those things that stood out to me uh it, it's uh once they do escape um Karen's trying to kind of talk uh Lee into uh into helping out with the revolution and getting back to the revolutionaries and all that and she brings it up as being about uh as being about you know uh, Pam should understand this because she's black and Pam doesn't really give a shit about that she doesn't you know care about any of that she just wants to get the hell off of the the island yeah um and uh you know then of course we get another little cat fight uh as you will uh and it uh, it kind of hurts even more you get because you have that uh, that beat it um, chain strapped to your wrist, so you kind of have to do the little you know fighting with fight dancing uh, with the with one arm uh, you know yeah being disabled yeah um, not wrapped with a bandana but you know chains are a little more <laughs> a little more tight yeah. uh, I'm told <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. we should say that some uh, I should say since you brought that up the tagline for this film one of the taglines. Chicks and chains, where they come from. This is fun. <laughs> so again, well, you know, yeah. where you come from. Nothing behind but prison bars. Nothing ahead but trouble. That's so, actually a good one. That is. That's a nice one. Um, here's the one that this one goes on forever. On the lamb from a prison hell, manacled together by hate and the strange ideas a woman gets after a thousand nights without a man. <laughs> what kind of strange ideas are those? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Does that have to do with the lesbian garden? I don't know. <laughs> I'll put the azaleas over here. Um, Brings a whole new meaning to the term rosebud. <laughs> it does, though. Uh, you get uh, you get a little nuns on the run action um, yes, yes. <laughs> in here, which is, which is pretty nice. And, uh, you know, <laughs> just seeing it, it, it that's another it, – it, it adds a little level to that, that kind of um, – a fetishy thing that you get in women in prison films aside from you know the the prison aspect uh now you get a little bit of nun action so you're kind of you're kind of ticking all the all the uh the boxes that you want to see yeah and uh I, I i wrote this down as one of my notes and it's it's kind of funny in uh in retrospect considering what happens next uh but i i wrote uh i was surprised that one of the nuns wasn't played by vic diaz uh, cut to Vic Diaz, uh, who is the uh, the drug lord uh, who Pam uh, used to work for, and it, it's a really interesting scene because, man, it's sleazy and but it's effective. Uh, he's basically questioning a uh, a, f- a friend of uh, Pam's, and he has her uh, her breasts strapped to uh, the weirdest looking car battery I've ever seen. Yeah. It's got like a little a little like beanie propeller thing going on on the top of it. Yeah. Uh, and he's asking her where she where she is and he just he he's he actually really comes off as sinister. I know that Diaz he's one of those guys where you could take him it's it's you could take him very unseriously, and I know that that's probably the worst way to express anything in the history of the world, uh, because of the way that he looks. Because he was, a, you know, he's a bigger guy, and he kind of had those bags under his eyes, and you know, and if you look at something along the lines of, um, oh, what 
was it? Uh, Vampire Hookers, oh, where basically yeah. he spends the whole movie uh, farting and, and giggling to himself. Yeah, uh, that's what you kind of think of normally when you see Vic Diaz, but or at least that's the impression that you would get just from seeing him on site. Uh, but when you see this movie, uh, he, he really is just he's a he's a sinister guy. He's sleazy. He has no uh, he's just a, like a dead look in his eye. Uh, he doesn't care about anything but you know what he wants, and he doesn't. He doesn't get excited about anything. He never—I don't think he ever raises his voice uh, at all. The entire movie is just like kind of a almost a monotone, yeah, yeah. dead inside kind of delivery that he does. And I, I was really impressed with it. I gotta say. Um, so you know, I really, I really, uh, I really like that one. Uh, da, 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 da. Oh, uh, <laughs> speaking of the nuns on the run, uh, <laughs> one of my notes was that little kid don't want any flowers. <laughs> uh, Pam tries to hand the kid uh, some flowers, and he just swats her away. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, I thought there was going to be a little, uh, little nun rivalry when they got on the bus, and there was the other, the two other uh, nuns that uh, that show up, the legit nuns in the white habit, in the white uh, habits, and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Eh, unfortunately, there was no cat fight with them, but. It was uh, it was implied that it was going to be there. I'm just kidding. It wasn't. But uh, <laughs> then out of out of no, out of nowhere, um, and I, well, no, I'll skip that. Uh, but um, you you wind up with uh, Sid Haig and his gang coming in because the uh, the corrupt uh, police captain who I think his name was Gomez. Um, his name was it was Captain Cruz, uh, played by Eddie Garcia. And he uh, he hires uh, Sid Haig, who plays a guy by the name of Ruben, and his gang to find the women, uh, so that uh, so that the police kind of don't have to. Um, and the interesting thing about uh, Haig and his gang is that they're basically cowboys with the most amazing fashion sense in the world. Yes. <laughs> uh, and I was like, holy shit, are you kidding me? I mean, Haig has the, you know he's got the two six shooters strapped to him, yeah. the cowboy hat. Every time you, every time he shows up, there's country music playing. Yeah, it's great. Um, yeah, I, I, I was really, I was really struck by that. I was like, wow, that's just a, such an odd little thing to put in there. But it, it, you know, it, it adds so much to the, it adds so much to the movie, so much flavor to it. Yeah, I love it. Uh, I love the pool hall scene with uh, Sid Haig and yeah, his, yeah, his buddies. And um, you know, Haig, Haig winds up being, um, I don't want to say more so, but in a different way. Perhaps even worse than the uh, the Vic Diaz character. Vic Diaz character, who I believe was also named Vic, so mm-hmm. uh, no confusion there. Yeah, <laughs> very little confusion. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but he uh, he winds up being even like skankier than and kind of meaner than uh, than the Vic uh, the Vic Diaz character because at one point he makes uh, the the cop and his I think it's the commissioner uh, drop their pants. Uh, so you could compare their uh, their dick sizes, and I was just like, "Wow, that's that's even weirder than him just being a cowboy in the Philippines." But sure enough, it was in there. And then later on, he uh, he takes uh, he takes this uh, this one guy who works for him's uh, two daughters and starts uh, messing around with them. And the guy is just sitting there like stunned that uh, this guy is doing this, you know, in the other room listening to it. Um, it, it was really really odd. Uh, but again, yeah. it was one of those things that you know it adds another another little level to the movie um, that you know you you would normally it's not like a standard cookie cutter uh, Filipino women in prison film. I don't no, think. it's not. No, no, I don't. Which think... I, which I was you know I was really surprised at because I I 
I got to I got to stop and just say that is that you know I I was not expecting this to be as developed as it is. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so you know credit for that. Yeah. No, it's a lot. It's a lot more deeper than standard. Yeah. Uh, women in prison film fair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, not so much. Not so much in terms of it's not so much term in terms of themes, uh, all that well, all that much more developed. But in terms of just what it's doing with the genre, like taking a little bit, you know, going down slightly different paths and uh, playing with different. It's not just you know finding ways for the characters to to go from point A to point B and then just filling in the rest of it with the uh, with whatever kind of scene you need to to fill out the running time there's actually you know development and plot going on in this yeah which well, I, I think really, really- i think you know the early 70s though women in prison films before they became even more sinister and even more exploitive than they were in the beginning i think there was a lot of political stuff when well, you know talking about the jonathan demis and the and uh roger corman stuff like that i don't think corman ever i don't think he ever told his filmmakers hey we're going to make political films in the philippines but i think he had the the talent there and they were kind of getting some of their personal politics and some of their ideas across in these genres. So, oh, they were. Yeah, so some of those early women in prison films are, are pretty high quality when you uh, go back and look at them. You're always kind of amazed because, obviously, it's such a seedy genre. Mm-hmm. It's easy to forget that, uh, you know, at one point there was some real talent tied to these things. Well, it's almost, it's, yeah, it's almost like uh, it's like horror movies in that way in that you could, or, or even science fiction, in that you could you could talk, you can talk about uh, different things other than it just being about the the hot bodies taking showers, you know, mm-hmm. right? Um, because it, it you know it's it gives you a little bit of uh, it gives you a little bit of uh, a bigger sandbox mm-hmm. uh, in order to play around in. Um, but let's see what else. Uh, and oh yeah, that's yeah. Like I was saying, the film actually you know carries on multiple subplots and man- manages to uh, to balance them and, uh, and pace them you know pretty well. Um, so, yeah, like that. Uh, what the hell does that say? Um, oh, oh, uh, the action, uh, the action in the movie is, is, is okay. Um, it's well enough edited and staged. It's not, uh, uh talked about the dick comparing scene. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and again, that's one of those, that's one of those things. I mean, just in their relationship, uh, between the uh, the crew's character and the Hague character is that you know you get that that equivalency of, between government and criminals, right? I right. mean, right. that's another one of that another little level of that uh, that political the political angle. Um, the uh, thing about Hague and his uh, his cowboy uh, persona is uh, it, it actually it culminates in a, in a nice little western showdown. Um, yeah. With uh, you know the wide open you know shot of the two characters facing each other off in the street and uh, it goes from there it turns into a little bit more of a uh, I don't want to say bloodbath but a little more like a, a firefight melee kind of thing uh-huh. uh, but it starts off as a western showdown and uh, I thought that was pretty cool too yeah um, yeah I mean the climactic battle is pretty I think emotionally it's pretty well done yeah 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 um, these movies they don't typically end all that well for all the characters and this one is no no exception although usually i i thought that this one and i don't want to give too much away but it was a little more downbeat than than uh usual even for this genre 
Mm. Uh, I mean, I was expecting a certain thing out of it, and I didn't quite. That didn't quite happen. Right. Uh, it it it, eh, it does to an extent. I mean, like I said, I don't want to give too much away. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's just one of the. And the, this even goes back to uh, to the uh, what I was watching, the Death Force. That's another movie. It's got like a, a, a pretty downbeat ending. Um, and it's just one of those things, you know. Eh, we don't see that anymore either. That was really a thing of the the seventies, uh, well, sixties, late sixties, and into the seventies. Uh, was that kind of you know downbeat ending? Right, right. Um, which we just don't see anymore because everything has to you know end up, quote unquote, up uh, anymore. <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a thing. We have to have ups. Yep, yep, uh, yep, yep, up. Um, yep, yep. And <laughs> and that is uh, that is all the notes that I have. So I will kick it over to you, sir. All right, I don't have a whole lot more to add. I mean, I'm glad we got a chance to finally cover this. I know Will uh, want to you know give a shout out to Will again. Like I said, he's just kind of tied up in things right now and doing some things he's got to get taken care of personally. Uh, again, nothing serious. So nobody. I know some people have asked. Uh, nothing serious. Nothing health-related, nothing like that. Just some things you got to get straightened out, and our schedules aren't quite meshing right now. So we're just kind of moving along here because we were building quite the backlog of material uh, to cover. Um, I know he really wanted to review this one, so I just want to you know, say, you know, sorry that he couldn't be here for that. Maybe we'll do it again another time. But uh, yeah. he, uh, he, uh, he's a big fan of this one. He saw it for the first time, I think, a few years back, and he liked it quite a bit. Um I like it also. I, I don't think it's my favorite women in prison films. I think I like, you know, I, I like Jonathan Demme's uh, Caged Heat quite a bit. I oh, like yeah. I like Chained Heat quite a bit too. It's very much more exploitation than than Caged Heat, but it's. Yeah. Well, I even loved Red Heat with the uh, yeah with the, uh, <laughs> with the Blair and uh, Sylvia Christel. Yeah, I think Red Heat actually that's the one with that's Schwarzenegger and Belushi, isn't it? Uh, that would be the good one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, that was a good women in prison film. <laughs> yeah. The. Uh, the uh, but this one is is definitely uh, in the top ten. You know, I mean, there's not a whole lot of these films, but there, there's enough to give it a top ten all its own. This is definitely in there. I don't know where it would fall for me. I'd have to go through that genre. It's a genre I don't revisit very often because, again, it's more of a a genre that was more appealed. It, it appealed more to my adolescence. Let's just be honest than it did to my to my adulthood. That's not saying that this film is is. I mean, it's smutty to a degree um, because it has to be. But I think it deals with, like you said, it deals with uh, political ramifications and ideas in a much more adult manner than I think. I think if anybody was to not see this, like I think if they see the box and they read the plot synopsis and they see who it's from and they see what's got going on or if they see stills from the movie, they're going to think, oh, man, this is a pure smut movie. But it's not that at all. It's actually uh, a lot more than just uh, tits and ass and uh yeah, right. and and along the along the political line, and I don't know if I said this, I probably did, but yeah, it's it's deceptively uh, marketed in that way. I mean, just from the title alone, because yeah. you, you're expecting it to be more of uh, more racially, you know, more dealing with race. Yeah, uh, on some on some level, uh, on some level. Oh, I mm-hmm. can't talk this morning. <laughs> uh, but it doesn't really. It, it doesn't really get into that overly much. Yeah, it's much more political, and uh, you know along that line than it mm-hmm. is about uh, about any racial division between yeah. the characters and people in general. Yeah, I don't think it even deals, even the way, in the ways it does deal with race, it doesn't deal with them in the way I think you expect it to deal with race. Like, right. I think you expect yeah. to deal much more, like, from the white angle, where really you're kind of more, I feel like, you're kind of more behind the Pam Greer character the whole time. And she's mm-hmm. you're kind of going from her angle more, and she's kind of looking down upon the, the white character more. 
which I think might get where the black exploitation angle comes in a little bit more because it does feel more like a black empowerment type thing. But it's 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 a it's a strange mix and and an odd film to say the least. And again, maybe maybe that's because it's made by you know Eddie Romero. It was made in the Philippines, you know, written by Jonathan Demme uh, partially. And there, there's all kinds of reasons why it could be this way, right? But I mean, either way, it it all works out and becomes something much more than than the sum of its parts, which is nice. Uh, uh, yeah, like you said, it doesn't take long for the shower scene to kick in. I mean, I think it's like literally like five ten minutes into the movie. Uh, even with the nudity, the women have to feel vulnerable all the time with these films, which I think is key. I think one of the things about women in prison films that I've always found interesting is the almost t-shirt pajama uh, deal where they just have like a t-shirt and then typically yeah. they have no bra, which there's something, uh, uh, again, it sounds misogynistic, but I'm not intending to be. There's something very appealing for a man like me to, to the idea of the, the t-shirt sleeping, you know, very little else, the large t-shirt. That's That's very appealing to me. Uh, but there's a vulnerability with that look too, and that makes the payoff even better. Like if if they they feel almost nude all the time, I think when they fight back, for some strange reason, that works. Um, again, yeah, I think because the, yeah, because of the vulnerability, right? I mean, because yep. you know any any of us went for you know running around nude or practically nude, we're vulnerable. Sure, so, yeah, and, and again, relating to to horror movies, you know, with the yeah. you know women typically running around in like a you know, bra and panties and yeah. that's all they got on. And then they got a, you know, the final girl will fight back and mm-hmm. your clothes are usually, you know, ripped apart. And yeah, I think yeah. that does speak to, to vulnerability, at least visually uh, from a visual perspective. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely metaphorically. And it's, and, you know, it's not something you look at every time, but I mean, it's obviously it's there. I mean, and, and of course the, these women in prison films, it was there over and over and over again to make it uh, kind of show. I mean, yeah, I think these, you know, some of these actors running around in the jungles of the Philippines, you know, with no shoes, no socks, uh, if they are wearing shoes, they're very rudimentary sandal type shoes. They're working in fields. They barely got any clothes on. I mean, it's, you know, I know it's hot, but you know, at the same time, you know, it's, it's gotta be uncomfortable to say the least. Um, another key factor is heat and sweat. You know, this genre, it has to all be about discomfort, dirt, filth. Uh, the hot box is a great example. You know, I think nowadays, you know, you can die in a car, uh, <laughs> And the heat nowadays, uh, I don't know how people would survive in these hot boxes back then. Uh, nowadays, you just got to put them in a car in America. You don't even have to put them in a <laughs> in a uh, a hot box in the Philippines. You can just put them in a Chevy Nova at Walmart, and uh, <laughs> that's essentially the same thing as a hot box. <laughs> yep. So it's it's pretty crazy. When I see when I saw that hot box, I was like, man, that would be really hot because it looked like it's a steel box, no yeah. windows. I didn't see any. Maybe there was some air holes in there. Maybe there's like some little slits for. Uh, oh, there's a bad pun there. Don't don't Yikes. take don't take my slit uh, word and and I, I'm not. Don't take that to the lesbian garden. <laughs> yeah, really. Don't take the slit to the lesbian garden. There's a there's a seriously really bad pun. There's a couple <laughs> slits in that box. I know that was that was where I was gonna go. With that I was like, ooh, terrible, ooh, touchy. <laughs> Sorry about that. And the uh, no, the uh, but that box is terrible. It's uh, it looks bad. And uh, as as much as the scene as I like seeing Margaret uh, Markov and uh, Pam Grier topless, and you know I'd, I'd pay good money to see Pam Grier topless every minute of my life. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing really very sexual about Pam Grier in this film. Uh, as much as that's kind of one of the angles I always get from a lot of her films. One of her one of her things about her movies in particular, her starring vehicles, is she's always very kind of strong and sexy and things like that. 
in this in women in prison films, sometimes you can have a sexy character. Like I think that the warden, she's kind of sexy in her kind of over domineering way and and kind of powerful way. There's something kind of sexy about that. I'm not really into that kind of stuff, but she has a kind of a even though there's lots of scenes where she breaks down, she does have kind of a confidence in her sexuality. Yeah. The uh Pam Grier character, most of her nudity is either shower-based or accidental or, uh, like we said in the hot box scene, uh, you could see that as exploitation, but it makes sense for them to actually not have their tops on because they're going to be sweating like crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, although, it does work in the other angle, too, which is a woman, women back-to-back. I guess if you want to be really exploited with the hot box thing and really torturous, you could put them, if they don't, especially if they don't like each other, you could put them face-to-face. And yeah. that would be even worse. Oh, that would that would be very yeah. That would really fit in with the with yeah. exploitation film. Yeah, and it would be even worse for torturous reasons, and it would be even better for exploitation reasons. But they don't uh, do that. Imagine the 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 the, uh, the breath of somebody like you know on the other uh, yeah. end up like that in the yeah. hot box. Oh yeah. my god. Yeah, Haig is pretty great as as usual. He one thing about Sid Haig, you can always say he's not the most attractive man. He's uh, certainly. Uh, not an Oscar-worthy actor, I think. But there's always been something about Sid, about his acting ability, that, that always kind of surprises me. Every time I see him, I'm just like, you know, this guy really knows how to play to the camera. He really knows what he's doing in front of the camera. Uh, he really knows how to put his, you know, a personality out there. He really yeah. knows how to. Yeah, he really knows how to project, and uh-huh. and even when he doesn't do that, like when he does like quieter roles and stuff, he he does a very good job. He's just a really solid, solid actor. And obviously, you know, he's kind of gotten in with the the Rob Zombie troupe and and things like that. You know, where you know that's where his careers went because you know the, he's a cult actor, and you know, you like it or leave, leave it or love it or whatever you want to say about it. You know, I'm glad he still gets to work because uh, actors like him typically they don't get to work. You know, they 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 go through the rest of their lives being that guy that was in those Roger Corman movies. And I'm yeah. just I'm just glad that he still gets to work because again, he's not. He and you know I've met him a few times. I mean, I've, I've been in you know just in hallways with him at horror conventions and things like that. And you can just say, Hey, said what's going on? He'll be like, Hey, bud, man, what's going on? And he's really genuinely a nice guy. If one of the few celebrities I would recommend if you ever get a chance to meet him. So go ahead and meet him. Give him a, toss a little money his way and get an autograph because he's really generally a very nice gentleman. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you've met Pam as well. Yeah, I have. Pam is sweet. Uh, she's quite wonderful as well. And uh, but she's also I think the time I met her was one of the first times she'd ever done something like that. Okay. And I think she was a little. Uh, I think Weary. she was a little, well. I think she was a little overwhelmed by the response. Okay. I think she was a little surprised at you know how how big a deal it was. That that amazes me when you hear when you hear these these folks. Uh, you know, you hear that a lot, with especially with the cult exploitation, you know, kind of personalities. When they find out that there's such a fan base for them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that's out there and, you know, wants to talk to them, wants to meet them. And they're always just amazed by that. And I'm like, I find that, especially in, in the time we live in where, you're, you know, the computer, where you could you know, just instantly access all of this stuff. Um, but I guess it's just not the world that they live in. They don't think about that at all. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I'm just always kind of amazed that they're they're shocked. That uh, the people want to talk to them about these things, or you know, just want to you know have uh, some kind of contact with them at all. That's just you know, um, what's sort of what's what I'm looking for? Uh, showing the appreciation for yeah. what they've done. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, it's kind of it's kind of heartwarming. It's yeah. kind of amazing to me at the same time. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's it's. I mean, I don't know how many of these she's done since. She hasn't done a whole lot of them. Uh, but she did that one, and I was like, you know, I got to go to that. I gotta I gotta be Pam Greer. I mean, it's just a bucket list item there. 
That's like when uh, Burt Reynolds started doing some conventions. I was like, well, if he pops up anywhere nearby here, I got to go. I mean, I got to shake hands with the Burt, man. I got to. I gotta say, I met Burt Reynolds. I mean, for me, for my childhood, that's a huge, that's a big deal. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Some people, not, yeah, for some people, that's not a big deal. But for me, that's essentially. I mean, I guess the only way to put it is, you know, for some people, that'd be like they're Tom Cruise or they're, uh, I don't know, they're Will Smith or you know, whatever big actor, they're George Clooney, whatever huge actor you can think of. Uh, you know, I, you know, I never got a chance to meet Charles Bronson. He probably never would have done one of those things. But man, I would have went out of my way to. You know, and supposedly he was not the <laughs> he was not the nicest guy all the time to his not, fans. Not exactly personal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he kind of just you know did his movies and then went back to his farm. But uh, uh, I still would have uh, gladly you know been able to just to say a shake shook his hand and be in a picture with him where I'm smiling gleefully and he's looking at the camera like this fucking sucks. <laughs> but Pam was generally she was very nice. So again, I, I hope she does some more of them because uh, I think she she had a. Uh, I, I believe she had a good time. I was in the room with her for at least fifteen or twenty minutes, me and Metal Mikey, and uh, she seemed to be quite enjoying herself. So, uh, yeah, I don't really like I said. Said Hank's great. Uh, love his look in this one. He's really great. Uh, don't really have a whole lot more to add. I agree with you. I like all the relationship stuff. It really develops over the course of the movie. Again, this is definitely taken off of uh, previous films, and it's basically an exploitation version of, uh, what was the name of that film again? What was it? Uh, the Defiant One? Oh, that's right. That's right. Defiant Ones. I always want to call it the Desperate Ones. Why do I always want to call it that? But I saw the Defiant Ones when I was young, and I, I used to always think, well, this is a pretty good movie. Nobody ever talks about it. Of course, it's it's pretty well known, but... Yeah. When I I've was, never seen that, honestly. It's pretty good. It's, it's, I, I like it. Who was that? Uh, Curtis and... Uh, uh, Portier, Portier, right? Yeah, Portier. Yeah. yeah. Good. Uh, Tony Curtis, I can take or leave. Sometimes he's not my oh, yeah. favorite actor, but well, he's, uh, he's good when he's in Egypt, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, to whom I also taught the classics. <laughs> you gotta love his his Brooklyn, Bro- yeah, his Brooklyn uh, Egyptian delivery. <laughs> yeah, how you doing there, Ramses? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's uh, yeah, it's it's uh, interesting. Uh, but also, I think one of the kind of hidden gems of this movie. Um, and I'll mention it because I didn't hear you mention it. Was is the score? The score is actually pretty good for this film. It's oh, yeah. it's not uh, it's not kind of super memorable. It's by Harry Betts, and uh, he did a few things. Uh, not a whole lot, but he, you know, he's did this, and uh, I believe he did. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I'm gonna have to click on him here. No, he didn't do that. I thought he did. No, looks like he didn't do a whole lot at all, really. Anyway, this is uh this is well this is very well done. It's not it's not a score that ooh, he was the arranger on Nighthawks nineteen eighty one, so there we go. Uh, <laughs> uh yeah, no he's 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 uh he did a very good job, I think, on this one. He did uh, yeah. Jerry Lewis's the big mouth. And Cheech and Chong's nice dreams. There you go. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> uh there's actually an actor in this one of Vic Chang's goons is known as Bomber Moran. So <laughs> Kid's named Bomber. That's a good name. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this is uh, again another great release from Arrow. There's a commentary track by a friend of the show, Andrew Levold, on here, who did the Wing Wing documentary. Um, he kind of gets into it a little bit, talks a little bit about Eddie Romero and things like that, and a really nice bit. There's an interview with uh, Markov. It's not, I don't think there's anything with Pam Greer on the disc, but uh, there's uh, some stuff with the Markov and stuff, and she's aged pretty well. Not as well as Pam. Pam's age uh, maybe as good as anybody ever, but oh yeah, um, still 
it's it's well worth the purchase. I mean, this, you're not going to find a film this film looking in better shape. And again, so Bravo does. Me and Will always say, and we even say to each other when we're not on the air doing this as part of the show. You know, Bravo to them, man. They just they keep knocking it out of the park with the films they choose to put out and the the bonus features they're putting together for these things. They're really giving these what would be considered, I think, secondary films. You know, all star treatment. All star treatment. Yeah. So let's give it over to you to maybe MVTs make or breaks because. I can hear my daughter upstairs. Oh, there we go. <laughs> um, I'm going to give the MVT to Romero. Uh, he keeps the film together, never lets it lag, and uh, you know, puts it all into a nice little uh, package. Very well. It's very well done mm-hmm. uh, for his part. Uh, my make or break is the uh, the first scene with the with the Vic Diaz character. Um, it really kind of hammered home that there's there's more than just. Uh, the straight plot going on. There's, you know, a little bit more of a different angle, and they were, they were gonna, you know, kind of add some more elements to it uh, to make it a more full movie rather than just being a, a one note kind of thing. Uh, and plus, it's just a really, it's a creepy scene watching him, uh, watching him do what he does and the way that he does it. Um, my score, uh, because this isn't, you know, the the this is not the greatest uh, women in prison film or anything like that, but it is rock solid. Uh, I'm giving it a 6.75 out of 10. Nice. Nice. Okay. Um, <clears throat> my MVT, I'm going to go with, uh, just the combo of Greer and Markov. I love, I love them together. Um, more so when they're together than anything though. Uh, separate, they're not quite as interesting in this film together though. Once they are out of the kind of transport and kind of moving throughout the, uh, the jungle there, uh, that's really when the meat of this movie kind of comes together for me. So I really like that. My make or break has nothing to do with the leads, oddly. It's Sid Hague in that pool hall scene when he first shows up. I, I fucking love that scene. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's generally just one of those great Sid Hague moments where you're like, look at this fucking guy. He just knows what the fuck he's doing. And, you know, those pool balls have not been caressed that way in years. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, maybe never in the Philippines. Who knows? You know, pool halls always look hot, but I imagine the Filipino pool halls are <laughs> super hot. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, my score is just a little bit higher than yours. It's seven out of ten. I agree with you. I don't think it's the gr- I, for me. For, there's something about the film that doesn't make it like a, a top five, like women in prison film. Maybe it's the fact that I think with that genre, I do want a little bit more smuttiness than I get here. Um, right. That's not a bad thing. Um, no, I do wish it dealt a little bit more with race. I do like, like I said, I like the kind of way it it kind of goes. Uh, race the kind of the other way than you would expect but um yeah it's 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 very solid and again kudos to uh jonathan demi and and others for uh managing to get some uh political material in there to get it uh to get it out in front of people i I don't know if the crowd they again you could get this stuff out there because i think a lot of times the crowds that would go see these wouldn't even pay attention to what was going on (laughs) they were just waiting for the the tits and ass like we yep absolutely (laughs) So you can get away with it, and again, that's you know that's what the that's what B movie genres are for. You can get a if you're smart enough and you can do it sneak well it enough. In. Yeah, you sneak it in, you know, and that's that's what you do. I mean, and, uh, George Romero made a whole career of that. Oh, yeah, and you just sneak it in, and uh, you can get a lot said about your government, your uh, your political views, and stuff, and things Society like that. Society in general, yeah. Yep. yep. You go back and look at the films that were made during the Reagan era, oh, and yeah. and you go back and look at them now, and you see a lot of criticism of the Reagan era. You, that you probably didn't see at the time, mm-hmm. but it's there uh, from from everybody from Jim Wynorski to I don't know Sam Raimi to whomever. They're, they're, but it's there. You just got to look for it. 
Uh, okay, so that's our thoughts on Black Mama, White Mama. Definitely pick that up. Uh, I would say definitely. I recommend people buy that one. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a short break, come back, and we're going to discuss Rage of Honor, directed by Gordon Hessler. A little uh, We'll be back after this. Hello, this is Kenny B. This is Tom KW. And we are two of the hosts from the Podcast on Fire Network. You want Asian cinema in a podcast? Well, we got the solution for you. Because at the Podcast on Fire Network, there's seven plus shows for you to choose from. You want Hong Kong action cinema and audio commentaries? We got that. You want dirty Hong Kong cinema? We got that. You want the eternal question, what's Korean cinema answer? We'll answer that. The flagship show Podcast on Fire covers classic Hong Kong cinema. Everything from Bruce Lee to Jackie Chan, John Woo and Jet Li. Featuring in-depth discussions with an aura of fun. This is your primary stop in the podcast world for classic Hong Kong cinema. So join me, Kenny B and Tom KW and a cast of thousands at podcastonfire.com also available on itunes on stitcher radio and come chat with us on the podcast on fire network facebook group and on twitter at podcast on fire podcast on fire network it's asian cinema in a podcast So our next film is Rage of Honor from that magical year of 1987, yep. uh, which, uh, again, we always say those magical year things, but 87 
is it the the two magical years we usually mention seventy three and seventy nine are for a reason that people who listen to the show a long time might be able to pick up. We never really kind of give it away, but but eighty seven tends to be for me. It's always kind of the pinnacle of ridiculous action film and storytelling, and kind of the beginning of when that stuff changed. When people said, "Wait a minute, we've we've really reached the limit." <laughs> Of, of how ridiculous we can be in these movies. Maybe we need to dial it back a little bit. So 87, for me, in a lot of ways, tends to be the height of insanity. So I always like to kind of mention that because I and I think Roadhouse is 87. I think uh, a few other classics that we've covered on the show are 87 for sure. Uh, this is directed by Gordon Hessler. And uh, the plot synopsis is Japanese cop Shiro and his partner Ray are after a bunch of drug dealers. But they are betrayed by an insider, and Ray is killed. Spoiler alert! Shiro follows the murderer, a sadistic drug lord, up to Singapore. <laughs> up to Singapore. I don't know where they're starting out at. So uh, <laughs> I have no idea. Or oh, uh, Argentina? Or am I thinking of something else? Yeah, maybe. And Gordon Hessler. Uh, he directed uh, Shokazugi and Pray for Death two years before this, and we should say Arrow also put out Pray for Death on Blu-ray. Um. But he uh, he's pretty well known. He did the Golden Voyage of Sinbad. I mean, we may have talked about it back when we did that. Murders in the Rue Morgue, Cry of the Banshee, Scream and Scream Again, Oblong Box, which is a pretty popular one. Directed Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, which we covered on the show. It's a classic of uh, modern filmmaking, oh, yeah. to say the least. Um, but somehow he ended up making Shokazuki movies by the time he got to the mid-'80s. <laughs> I don't know how that happens. I don't know how you go from Sinbad and, and these kind of you know classic horror films to... Shokasugi movies, but hey, man's got to work, man. You know, that's yeah. the way you look at it. Uh, yeah, he uh, and you know, I think he does a fine job. He died a couple years ago. Uh, he lived to be through uh, the ripe age. Of, yeah, eighty-eight. Lived to be eighty-eight years old, so he lived a nice uh, to a nice ripe age, and hopefully uh, went away peacefully. I don't know why I'm saying that now. It sounds bizarre that I'm worried about that so much. Uh, anyway, uh, all right, I can lead on this one. Um, we should say. The f- score for the film is done by Stelvio Cipri- Cipriani. So yep. he's. Uh, did, what, did we just talk about him last week? Uh, we did uh, briefly touch on him, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Stelvio, uh, that's kind of an interesting thing. You know, he come over and he did a few things, I think, in America, but he's mostly known for uh, Gialli type stuff. Yeah. Uh, but he, you know, the score's fine for this. It's not. I don't it, it is. It really only stands out. At, you, know, you can really only kind of hear the, the Cipriani in it. Um, at certain points, other than that, it's, it's kind of a, it just kind of goes along. Yeah. It doesn't really stand out too much. Uh, but in the waterfall scene is when I really kind of heard that it was uh, it was Cipriani rather than just yeah. being you know somebody else. Yeah, I tell you, there's something about Shokazuki movies. Uh, it's not just him. It's actually kind of a a kind of a it's kind of normal for the genre ninja films or films involving somebody who's played a ninja before because he's not really a ninja so to speak in this film he does wear all black at some point but i don't think he ever wears the ninja hood no but he does have the shurikens yep and some of them explode yes they do with a little they, they even have a little the, the little predator timer yes. on it. you know just like the dots moving around yeah. uh one thing about the the shurikens in the 80s there must have been a lot of time spent on pulling that thing out whipping it up into camera view and making sure that that light shines on it just right <laughs> you gotta hit the yeah. You gotta Man, hit the you gotta, gotta shuriken mark. Yeah, because if you don't hit that shuriken mark, cut. <laughs> uh, Two over, back to one. <laughs> yeah. We gotta reset up the whole scene. Come on. <laughs> but I mean, you you really had to hit that mark. And uh, Shokazugi, you know, he always would hit it. At, uh, well, obviously, I'm only seeing the finished product, but 
Uh, I love the shiny shurikens. I always love those, man. I love that somebody would, you know, for something that's deadly and something very disposable like a shuriken, it seems to me like they are always so clean and so kind of like uh, kind of pornographic in a way, so well taken care of, so shiny and slick. Uh, they're filmed almost. They're filmed almost kind of like uh, how uh, George Miller films cars, right? Yeah, yeah. just that kind of. Hey, look at this, buddy. Yeah, check this out. Look at uh, these points. Yeah. I got six. How many you got? <laughs> you just a four. Yeah. yeah, it was always hard to stick those fours in a tree, man. Oh my god, you really had to hit. You really had to spin them. Yeah, it really did. Um. So yeah, you got to hit that. Like I said, you got to hit that shiny shuriken mark, and he does. He nails it pretty good. Um. I know, I know he must. Uh, do you ever feel like Shokazuki's wearing guideliner? I, he has to be wearing. Guy I was going to mention that. Yes, absolutely. I was. I was never. I'm never 100 percent sure if it's just his eyelashes, the way that his eyes look. But I, I'm almost 100 percent sure that he wears guideliner. And the reason that I say that is because, um, and you you can kind of notice it in this movie is that his eyes look slightly darker or lighter in different scenes. Yeah. Like. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like sometimes it just looks like normal lashes, and other times it looks like he's got the guy liner on. Yeah. No, I uh, a lot of times when they wear the ninja mask, like even in the ninja. Yeah, well, you make it stand out. Yeah, yeah. Franco Nero. Kind of like, like how uh, you know yeah. when uh, if you ever watched the uh, you know superhero movies with like Batman, where yeah. he's got the black around his eyes, yeah. and it's just you know if you pull the mask off, it's not there anymore. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> it makes the eyes you know makes the eyes stand out and makes yeah. the the mask kind of yeah it makes it pop makes them just you know yeah. kind of pop a little bit. But yeah, with the ninja mask, you almost have to have the guy liner because. You gotta have the eyes pop because it's just not a real tight mask and they gotta really kind of show and, but I noticed in this one that, you know, the, again, there's no real traditional ninja mask that I can remember, but even like at the dinner scene, uh, Shiro's at a dinner scene, he's got the guy liner on. I'm like, man, that guy took him longer to get ready for dinner than it did his girlfriend, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> he put on a tux and what, she's just wearing a dress, whatever. One of the things that works about Rage of Honor compared to, I think, Pray for Death, Pray for Death has a very, um, rudimentary kind of bad guy element. One of the things I think that works really well for Rage of Honor is, and this film in particular, and why I think this is a really strong Shokazuki film, is that he has a, a good he has good competition this one. The Louis Van Bergen Havelock character, the Havelock bad guy. Havelock is this kind of sexual, uh, kind of seedy 1987 bad guy who kind of gets off on his sadistic ways of doing things. And to me, hero films are only ever as good as the bad guys and vice versa. And this one has a very good, uh, like most Westerns, this one has a very good uh, kind of one-two. And these two characters, these two actors, I think, kind of play off each other really well. Havelock's kind of fun. He's, he's He basically wears, you know, uh, Bugle Boy pants, suspenders. Uh, he's got the cigarette tucked behind the ear. He's got a scarf. He's got a strong scarf game. I was, I was going to say the first scene you see him, you see him, and uh, he looks kind of like he's dressed like a like an Albanian uh, goat herder. Yeah, or something. yeah I mean, he's got like the loose shirt with the suspenders, that loose uh, yeah. scarf thing going on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not, not very many bad guys you run into rock the scarf and the suspenders in the same, you know, at the same interrogation. I mean, that's it's a, just not done. Yeah, it's just not. I mean, that's that's a step up. Yeah. So already Havelock's bringing a strong game uh, to to this, uh, and he he's having a lot of fun. He he's underrated, I think, as a tough guy performance in this film, and. And Van Bergen, he you know he's he's chewing up the scenery. He's having a lot of fun with the character. I think he, you know he's he's both he he plays it both as irritated and bored. And uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, he's just he's, he he has this like dead look in his eyes. Yeah, yeah. He just kind of play. He's just, you know everything is like you know, almost monotone. Like, uh, but it kind of fits for the character because of how sadistic he is and how you know just kind of dead inside the guy is. Yeah. Yeah, because he's you know that, that's the character they're trying to put across is that he has yeah. uh, he's not he's not even human this Havelock he's mm-hmm. 
he just he's an animal. Yeah, yeah. no, and they and they do that pretty well. Yeah, yeah, they do. I, I think he he has a lot of fun uh, with the performance. Uh, he loves to show everybody up too. Yeah, yeah. he can't let anybody have their moment. No, <laughs> he shows up. That that one guy's working some karate on the on the grounds, and he just kind of shits all over his moves. <laughs> and then, and then he, brings, he brings in the two ninja specialists later on, and you know they cut the they cut the apple in the in the quarters, and then he he just has to go down there and cut another piece in the half. It's like, yeah. Fuck are you? Yeah, you just can't let us have this. Yeah. This is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> this uh, movie, it's interesting uh, watching on Blu-ray. I noticed uh, that Japanese stunt double. There's uh, definitely uh, a few moments where it's so much not show Kazuki, uh, <laughs> very much an American stunt double, uh, dummy falling combo scene in here that's uh, pretty interesting because uh, there is a nice dummy scene. Uh, and again, go back to the Hyvalock character. Say something I was going to say before we kind of I kind of moved on to the next point. He, he does everything slowly. Like they, like he's in, like you said that apple scene's a good example. He's not in a hurry. Like you cut it into four pieces. That's great. He's going to cut it in that hat, last half piece. It's going to take him a minute to do that. Yep. Like he's not. He don't care about these twins. Bring in the twins. He doesn't care about that. I love it in any, in any movie when a when a bad guy says, "Give me the twins." <laughs> Like, uh, as soon as he said that, I was I was hoping to God that it was going to be the Paul brothers, but yeah, you know, what yeah. Can you do? yeah, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. <laughs> I just love when bad guys will. I mean, because when he says "Give me the twins" or "Give me the twins," you have no introduction to the twins before that, so you don't like who are the twins? Yep. <laughs> who are these guys? And then they come in, they start cutting apples. Uh, <laughs> at first, I thought, does he does he need the twins because he wanted his apple cut, or does he need the twins to take care of Shiro Tanaka? I don't know. I don't know which. Maybe both. Obviously both. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, uh, they probably all shared the apple afterwards. Yeah. So. It makes sense to me. There's moments in this film, like, you know, there's great moments visually. Uh, I should say that a lot of ninja films, you know, there's a person swimming. They carry the sword by their mouth. I got to say, man, it, it can't be easy carrying a sword by mouth underwater. That, can, that can't be one of the easier things to do. That's uh, going to drag you down. That is going to drag gonna, you down. It's going to keep pushing back against you oh man if you got sensitive teeth that's really going to push hard against those teeth that metal and that enamel and oh, oh man the waves hits it just right and it kind of kicks it left or right like oh not only that if you got a sharp edge i mean those these swords are sharp I and mean, they're cutting apples in the force and you know you gotta be careful you don't want to cut your tongue there uh, <laughs> uh and again we get another dummy scene where a dummy flows downstream I'm, yep. I'm kind of, I'm, I hate to be kind of quick about it, but I'm trying to, I do have a daughter that's awake, and so I do apologize if my review yep. sounds a little hasty, but I uh, don't want it, uh, anybody to be, uh, I mean, I want to give uh, props to the movie. I do like this movie quite a bit, but I am moving along pretty quickly. Uh, the rules of action action films. Let's get into some of that. Uh, again, shiny shurikens, exploding yep. huts that are made of gasoline, not, not made of uh, grass. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, these huts fucking explode, buddy. I mean that that's always the great thing. You see huts in a movie, you know that those huts carry nothing but TNT. <laughs> it doesn't matter if people living in them. It doesn't matter none of that matters. We know that you can live in them, you can raise your children, you can keep your little pig farm next to it. We also know you keep we also know you keep a large supply of TNT inside your hut. <laughs> yes. We're going to shoot we're going to shoot one flame and arrow <laughs> and the whole thing is going to explode. Uh the flamethrower in this is pretty awesome, by the way. Yeah. It, it's a pretty insane flamethrower. Um, looks a little dangerous, actually. Maybe even an early model or something. I don't know. Flamethrowers are always a scary weapon to me. It just seems like uh, I don't know if I want fire and uh, flammable liquid that close to my body at any point. 
Yeah, that's that, if that uh, if that happens, if you get happen to get a little bit of spray back on that, that's gonna sting. Yeah, man, windy day, not a good day, you know. Oh yeah, not a good day. It's like you know, like a, you take a kid out with a kite and it's not very windy and he's depressed because you can't get the kite up, and then you get a bad guy who goes out with his flamethrower and it's too windy and he gets depressed because he can't use his flamethrower. Yeah, right. Yeah, what a disappointment! Like, oh man, we can't bring. We can't bring Joe, man. Oh, Joe don't get to come? No, Joe's the flamethrower guy. Oh, fuck, man. It's It's March. We can't bring Joe? <laughs> uh, it's too windy. Too windy. <laughs> too windy for Joe. Sorry. You know how it gets. <laughs> Joe's in the corner depressed, crying over his flamethrower. <laughs> uh, <but> it is. <laughs> now, let me, let me get to some of the plot here. Basically, we got uh, drug deals. We get a little traveling uh, here. I think he ends up in South America, maybe? Uh, Singapore, so. yeah, right. Singapore, nice. No, it's Singapore, but it looks more like South America to me. Yeah. Um, either way, uh, we get some pretty great scenes. Uh, some scenes of uh, Shokuzuki kind of jumping around on the outside of a hotel. Well, not him essentially, but some little normal action scenes there. There's a like a little seedy kind of rat character that's kind of fun to mess with. Um, he's kind of fun. There's this is kind of, it's a location based kind of action film. So when you could still kind of travel, I think the locations and people like Canon and things like that, they could do this pretty cheaply. And, uh, so it's kind of fun to do a little bit of globe trotting. Um, the, uh, essentially they're just trying to bust Kazuki just trying to bust a, it's basically a revenge slash bust a drug ring type film. But yep. Havelock makes it personal because he tries to kill him. Uh, Kazuki, uh, hides in a, I don't know, a thing of, dog food or something some kind of thing of ash or i don't know what that is like baby formula or something oh yeah 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 <laughs> he's laying in to, to explode to ex- escape yeah, the explosion he's, he's sitting in the simulac yeah <laughs> the simulac that's right and uh and uh so it's all gets it all gets personal now the great thing about this film for me personally okay uh maybe not for you maybe not for anybody else listening to stuff but what i love about this movie my favorite thing about it is that when the Havelock character comes back, he comes back as the the uh, Bill Bixby who has changed into the Hulk and changed back type clothes wearing Havelock. <laughs> the tatters, yeah. yeah. The this, Doc Savage kind of. This is one of the most tattered costumes you will ever see in cinema. Oh, yeah. It is amazing. It has tatters and strips. And and not even uneven. It's it's well done. It looks it looks amazing, but it looks yeah, so straight lines on them cuts. <laughs> it looks it looks so well made, and it's an amazing uh, you know because because one of the things about his character, he's a well dressed bad guy. Like I said, he had the bugle boys on, the suspenders, the cigarette tuck, and the scarf game going on when you first see him. Other times you see him, he's got a suit on, um, and other nice clothes. But this time he's. Now he's come back and he's all he's torn and tattered. But even his torn and tatters are are well done. They're they're custom made, tailor made, torn and tattered bad guy here. That is a mouthful. But it makes yeah it was. But it makes uh it makes it so much fun to watch this kind of finale between him and, and Shiro Tanaka, the Kazuki character, because Kazuki's running around stuff and and every time you can just see glimpses of the Havelock character, it just reminded me of those like those like I said those tattered you know I grew up watching the Hulk on TV. Those kind of Lou Ferrigno type tattered shirts that he would wear at the beginning when he changed into the Hulk, and he eventually would rip it off and then flex. You know, you remember those yep. moments? I know you do. You probably watched it like I did. And, oh yeah, every uh, week. Yeah, yeah. And I'm trying to get my son to kind of get into it. But he doesn't like eyeball stuff too much. Like he doesn't like the contacts. Oh, so. with the green, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But they are kind of freaky. You know, if you're not really into that stuff. Yeah, they're unnatural looking. Yeah, but uh, I've shown him kind of some things of uh, Ferrigno doing the Hulk stuff, and and. Uh, 
actually, you know what? I don't even know. Should, some of that stuff might be too grown up. Because, you know, 70s television is totally different than modern television. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Probably some stuff in there he might not need to see yet. But uh, I, I love that show. I love the way that stuff looked. And this reminded me, I almost wanted, I almost wanted Havelock to, like, shoot up some of his own product. And, like, you know, turn into, like, a Bane-type bad guy or something, you know, and start flexing and just kind of tear more of his shirt off. Cause that would have like, been a nice angle. Yeah, because it's, like it's almost like a very superheroic moment when he comes back. Because, first of all, he shouldn't have survived. I mean, he he survived fine. His clothes did not. Um, it was the most even-handed explosion ever because, like we said, those are some even cuts. So, so I mean, that explosion, he was in the right place at the right time for that explosion because, I mean, he's cut evenly all around his tatters. And uh, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> at what point, though, if you're that bad guy, at what point do you just ditch some of those clothes? Because it's got to get <laughs> – at, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, at some point, that stuff's got to get in your way. It's like, why am I running around like this? <laughs> I mean, never never mind that they were, you know, wet clothes. And that, you know, that when that stuff starts to dry, you, get, you start to get all irritated and shit. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, aside from that, yeah, you would think that at some point you would just, just tear the damn thing off, man. Yeah. You're just – just dragging yourself down. Yeah, at least tie the shirt off. I can understand keeping the pants on. Well, yeah, I mean, you don't want to run around in your uh, your tidy whities. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the gotchy guy. Yeah, he might be a commando guy. He might be one of those yeah. guys. Don't even do that. I so, can see that actually. Yeah, but the Very shirt. European. Yeah, the shirt essentially, you know, looks like uh, I don't know, man. It looks like something out of Breaking Two. Again, <laughs> that's that, that's eighty seven though. Eighty seven was like say there, there's something well, about in nineteen eighty seven. There's something about the height of absurdity of fashion, action heroes, bad guys. Everything was just like it's, it's it's like everybody was just like on the same page and like you know what would be really cool here? What if our bad guy had a cigarette tucked behind his ear and he wore a scarf? Yeah. Oh, okay. Hey, of course, it, it makes no sense, but I mean, it, it looked good. But that was before scarves were cool too. Yeah. He was he was setting yeah. trends. Yeah. There you and go. Uh, he's you know you say that uh, the clothes came straight out of Breaker Two and that you know Havelock got that game covered, but Show has the uh, the mesh undershirt covered. Oh yes, yes. You got the but you got the dual. Yeah. That double trouble there. Shokazugi, unfortunately for him, he, he gets a lot of dialogue in this film. And I think Shokazugi's at his best, obviously, when he doesn't talk a lot. And, uh, you know, that's not that's not any slight against Shokazugi. I just think he, you know, obviously English is his second language. Uh, he struggles sometimes with the dialogue and stuff. He's fine, but you could easily poke holes in the way he announces, he pronounces some things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think he just has a little too much dialogue in this film. Um, it's it's okay for him to have dialogue. Don't get me wrong, but I just I think that there's just a little too much for him here, and he has to be kind of macho with his dialogue, and it just kind of comes across sometimes as clumsy. Yeah. And uh, again, not not a not a bad film. It's it's much better. Outside you know outside of the ninja films that he did, I think this might be my favorite of the Shokazuki films. He didn't do a whole lot. I think people think that he made a whole bunch of action movies, but he really didn't. He kind of came over here. He kind of shone bright for a brief moment in time. And really, he's kind of become a cult actor more than anything. Uh, well, the the ninja fad kind of went away too, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he only did nineteen. 19- he never he never really transitioned over to, to much of anything else besides that. Yeah, he's only or, done- or even if he wanted it, well, yeah. wanted to, I I, could, I honestly couldn't say. But yeah, he only did nineteen films, and, and uh, dogs crying in the background. Sorry, that's okay. He only did nineteen films, and uh, you know, eighty one did Enter the Ninja, Revenge of the Ninja, eighty three. He was on the Master TV series, which I think was the Lee Van Cleef show. Yep, yep, and uh, uh, James Van Patten. Yeah, and then Ninja Three, Nine Deaths of the Ninja, Pray for Death, Rage of Honor, and from there, I think he did. I think was Black Eagle the one with Jean Claude Van Damme. Yeah, it was. Yes, him yeah. and Jean Claude. And uh, really, after that, he kind of just he kind of just disappears into the background. Did Blind Fury, 
And then he just kind of, you know, like I say, he just disappears. He goes back to Japan. He ends up in a video game, uh, Tenchu, the video game in 98. And then he, he you know, uh, Ninja Assassin, which uh, James McBride did, I believe, or McTeague did, which I liked. Some people didn't. It was very computer and CGI. Um, yeah. The Rain starring Ninja film. The, I think he, I think McTeague brought him back because he's Shokazugi. I think they wanted to, you know, kind of show their props to the Ninja and bring mm-hmm. Kazugi back. But he didn't really do a whole lot. So he is very much the definition of a cult actor. He didn't really do a whole lot of stuff. So his uh, son, Ken Kazugi, very, uh, very prominent and very uh, good uh, action hero actor. Uh, probably he's done more than his dad at this point. But yeah, that's all my notes on uh, Rage of Honor. Because uh, wife's text me, which means it's starting to get uh, into danger zone. I'll let you get through your notes pretty quickly. I'm going to fly as fast as I can. Um, let's see. You get Hot Licks on the Party Barge, which is always a good way to start up in the 80s movie. Uh show comes on very very Don Johnson with the blazer and the pastel shirt. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> pushed up right off the bat. Um, it's not a party till there's a gun stuck up your ass, which you'll know the moment when you see it. And the great part about this uh, this uh, thing is that the the grin that Shokasugi gives at that point is just priceless. It is. Uh, you know, he's so good with the shurikens that he actually uses one to stop a boat chase. Um, which how he did that, I got I mean, the it's whole amazing. thing is yeah, right. It's amazing. Um, let's see. Uh, his white nondescript partner uh, Vic doesn't have time for bureaucratic bullshit on you know out on the streets mm-hmm. uh which is the common thing you get there um oh uh he's wearing a tux uh when he's raiding the warehouse so, like he doesn't have time to change and you know, part of the part of what this movie was to me was kind of shokasugi trying to be james bond which is where you get like the globe hopping and all that sort of thing yeah, he does like yeah. thing. I, I think, think that's kind of like his his kind of stab at or they wanted to try and give him that, that angle of uh, trying to be more like a James Bond because he's like an agent kind of, but he's not. He's kind of like a street cop, but he's not. Yeah. He works for like an international organization. So Yeah, I think they are trying. They were trying to see if they could branch out the Shokazuki brand a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, who carries a, a throwing star in their shoe on a date? And then, you know, I said, well, who doesn't? Yeah. Um, that's, a tricky, that's a tricky place to carry a throwing star, man. Yeah, man, that's going to scrape right against your ankle. Yeah, that's a bad deal. Uh, horrible. <laughs> um... <laughs> See, uh, Shiro, of course, you know, quits his job to go rogue in Argentina. Um, yeah. I quit. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he says. I mean, it's exactly what he says. Uh, <laughs> why would you take your girlfriend to chase down a drug lord? Well, um, you know, I mean, some, some in harm's way. Uh, you know, some people need they need the they need the something to come home to. You know, after they uh, they're out chasing people in the jungle, they need to come back to the hotel. Argentina. You know, yeah. you can find something else. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, uh, the guy, uh, the guy in the lobby that's uh, that's tailing him uh, with the uh, the pipe, the pipe smoker. He oh, yeah. totally doesn't stand out with his red shirt with the white piping and the pinstripe blazer. Yeah. Totally doesn't stand out in a crowd. The guy's also about seven feet tall. Yeah, <laughs> he is not selling it. He's yeah. not. Uh, he's not covert. No. Um, we get the, I, there were at least three dummy deaths that we get in this uh, yeah. off the balcony down the river, and I think there was one other one at the end. It's probably the same dummy all three times. Oh my god! Yeah. Might be the MVT of the movie, the dummy. That might have been where they got uh, Havelock's shirt after. Uh, yeah. Got yeah. Shooting him. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, you get the dance exhibition uh, in the middle of the movie, which I don't know what style of dance that is, with the guys like twirling the chains and stuff. And they had like the big baggy uh, pants with like, like all the tassels on it. Yeah, and Havelock loving it. Yeah, it um, doesn't have anything to do with ninjas. I can tell you that. 
But I, I thought I, I kind of like that scene because, you know, they do a nice little intercut between that and uh, Shokasugi kicking some ass. But they were playing like the sound from the dance over top of the uh, the ass kicking. And I thought that was a nice little touch on there. A uh, nice little scene uh, sequence. Um, the two Shokasugi's easier on the guy liner in this one than usual. So, yes, I do have that note. Um <laughs> Let's see. Oh, uh, the the when he pulls out those hand knives, like the 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 knives on the back of his hands, the like he wears, you know, you you put a fist and there's like the big blade coming off the back of his hands, like a sheet metal Wolverine kind of thing mm-hmm. going on. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, no, yeah, I did kind of notice that. Yeah. Um, let's see. Do do do. Stubby squared waterfall. Um, Havelock is wearing his Great White Hunter ensemble. Yes. Which is pretty nice, you know, with the hat, with the that yeah. that uh, kind of speckled ribbon around yeah. going around the, the the brim there. Most dangerous game moment. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> uh, and of course, you know, the, they're deadly natives in the jungle uh, as well. Oh, always. Who has to who has to confront? You know, just to give it a little more a uh, little more flavor, not just be uh, one note with the drug lords and the, all that sort of thing. Um, his partner Vic uh, gets to show off some very untough tits. Um, <laughs> Because uh, he's got his shirt wide open and he is not the most well-developed chest in the entire world. No. And I think that uh, one of my notes is his might flop around more than Jen. Jen yeah. being uh, more than Jen's uh, boobs. Yeah. Um, Looks like me with uh, two two or three buttons undone at the buffet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, your pants or your shirt? My both. <laughs> There's a lot of flopping around. Get very... Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Uh, oh, you had the 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 camouflage ninja suit suits uh, show up in there, um, and I know that uh, you know for a time besides the black and white, there was always the camouflage. It's kind of like the uh, the stainless steel uh, variety <laughs> of uh, ninja suit, right? <laughs> yes, white, black, or stainless steel. Well, yeah. white, black, or camo. And I know for a fact that I've drawn my fair share of those in yes. my day. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, just did the little speckles and shit. Yes. yes. Uh, when he's in the warehouse, uh, you can see uh, SMF painted uh, on one of the walls in graffiti. I'm thinking to myself, was Twisted Sister here? <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know what I'm talking about, buddy. That's one. <laughs> SMF. Uh, oh, nice. You get uh, you get some improvised throwing stars in this. Uh, valve handle, circular saw blade. And I thought that was a nice little touch, too. That was. Um and then uh, they all hit the they all, they all hit the light right at the right angle too. Oh yeah, yeah. Everything's got to have a glint. <laughs> um, that uh, Dean Cundey would have loved making ninja movies, right? He would have. Yes, he would have been. He would have been a master. You'd think most cinematographers like I got to make a ninja movie. Yeah, right. It's it is a bucket list item for most of them. <laughs> uh, when I when I open up the American cinematographer and you know it's one of the first things you see. Would you like to make a ninja movie? You betcha. Uh, that's all the notes that I have. I, I'm going to say this. I, I, my favorite Shokasugi movie is, to this day, Ninja 3, The Domination. Although, let's be honest, it's not really a Shokasugi movie. He's only yeah, in it for yeah. a brief period of time. It's a Lucinda Dickey movie, which mm-hmm. I'm more than okay with. Um, but that's still my favorite of the, of the films that he's done. Uh, th- that I've seen. Uh, you know, I've got to be honest. I haven't watched a lot of his stuff. In recent times, most of what I saw was back in the VHS days. Yeah, uh, I did watch Pray for Death a little while back. Um, uh, un- unlike you, between those, the two of these, that's I like that one a little bit more than this. Okay, okay. Um, to me, this this just was really kind of outside of a few shining moments and a few nice nice touches and uh, you know some craftsmanship going on. This felt 
very standard to me. Okay. Okay. Uh, and it's not bad. Not no. bad by any stretch. And it's worth you know it's worth the investment of time and effort. Um, but it just this one is a little bit more of uh, just more boilerplatey to me mm-hmm. uh, than than some of his other stuff. I can see that. I can see um, that. So that's where I'm. That's where I'm at with this one. It's still good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, I, like I said, it does have a nice uh, uh, enough nice little touches to distinguish it somewhat. But um, yeah, that's where uh, that's where we stand, buddy. So uh, if you want to do yeah. uh, make breaks. Uh yeah, I'd say my favorite Shokazuki is probably Revenge of the Ninja. The the uh, okay. The, yeah, I haven't seen that one. I couldn't tell you the last yeah. time. Enter the Ninja. He's not in my that much either. But Revenge of the Ninja is the one. That, Which uh, one? Nine Deaths of the Ninja is the one in the jungle with like the crazy Nazi guy. Uh, I think so. I think that's. Okay. I think so. And, uh, and a lot, a lot, a lot of those were a lot of these films. Uh, that's one with Brett Huff in it. I'm, 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 a lot of his films were. Damn, that might be. Yeah. There's a character, there's an actor in that who plays Albie the Crow. His name is Blackie Dammit. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's also an actor named. like the Thomas Dolby looking guy. <laughs> there's an actor in there named Bruce Fanger. <laughs> <laughs> a great actor name. I just had to cover that. Um, okay, my MVT, because uh, I can hear not the pitter patter of little feet, but the grumble mumble of uh, Dad, get your ass up here. Uh, MVT is. Uh, I'm going to go with Kasugi on this one. No, you know what? I'm not. Uh, as much as I like Kasugi. Because uh, I think he's interesting to look at and stuff. I think he's pretty much just Shokasugi in this. I'm going to give it to uh, Louis Van Bergen uh, because what I like about uh, Van Bergen is that uh, he's having a lot of fun with this bad guy performance. He's like just chewing scenery. He gets the great moment at the end, which kind of ties my make or break, which is the finale. I don't always like picking finales for make or breaks. I've said that so many times, but I don't because... It always seems like a cheat because the, your make or break probably should be your finale, especially in an action movie. You know, you definitely want your your make to be that that uh, that last moment, the fight between the bad guys. Uh, but in this case, it is what you're building towards, and it does pay off. I think. Um, again, I agree with you. It's not. I mean, you can go one way or the other on Rage of Honor or Pray for Death. Uh, I'm a little bit more Rage of Honor. You're a little bit more Pray for Death. Tomato, tomato. But I could see that uh, because both films, I think, have a similar feel to them. They I think they were really trying to push Shokazugi at this point. Yes. And this is toward the end of Canon's run. Uh, or was it was it Canon for sure? I think it was still. No. Uh I think this was MGM. Yeah, maybe MGM. I think they well, I think they bought Canon, didn't they? I believe they did. Okay. Uh something like that. Transworld Entertainment's what this was. But uh I think that, you know, obviously he came from the Canon world and uh, you know, I think they were they were gonna try to push him and they couldn't really push him and and uh, I think people were kind of hoping that he would be a worldwide star. Again, he became more of a cult star than anything. So, right. Uh, like I said, MVT, Bert Van Bergen, Make or Break, uh, the finale, and my score is a seven out of ten. It's it's fine. It's uh, I could probably go a little bit lower, but uh, I do like this one a little bit more. And Pray for Death. So, uh, and it's watchable again. I like the dummy deaths. I like the kind of waterfall stuff. The waterfall fight itself is pretty good. Looked a little risky, actually. I don't know if I'd have liked doing that fight. I don't know what they were standing on. Uh, you know, water's rushing over rocks like that. It seems like you could twist an ankle very easy. So yeah. that's the old band in me, you know. Uh huh. <laughs> like, um, be careful, Shokazuki. You could hurt your ankle. <laughs> don't. Well, that's the thing. You fall over uh, on the ankle with the the ninja star tug. Oh yeah, that's even worse. Buddy, that's gonna poke holes. <laughs> um, let's see. I have Mick. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, MVT is yes. It's Van Bergen. 
he does a really good job of uh, making a nice little sociopathic villain. And yeah, like you said, he's he's having a good time with it, and it shows. Uh, and you know, it's interesting. Uh, just as a, a quick aside, I did not realize that he was the star of the John Sable TV show based on the uh, the Mike Grell comic book. Interesting tidbit. No. Um, yeah, which I've I've never seen that show nor read any of the books, but I'm you know I'm keenly interested. Huh. Um, but anyway, yeah, he's the he's the uh, the MBT in this one, I think. Uh, the make or break for me is the uh, the river fight, uh, nicely shot, down and dirty, lots of slow mo, um, and it's you know pretty pretty rough going. Uh, it's very well choreographed, so um, kudos to that. Um, I'll, obviously, I'm a little bit lower than you on this one. I'm coming in at around a six point five on this. I think that uh, based on my my last rewatch of Pray for Death, I think um well, well um, I think I'm probably a little bit higher on that one. Though, probably about like by maybe a quarter point. Mm. Because uh, I do think that they're they're similar enough, uh, like you said, you know, kind of late stage action show Kasugi movies, right? Uh, that they they tend to they tend to blend together as being not quite as distinct as some of his earlier stuff mm-hmm. to me, anyway. Yeah. Uh, but that's where I come in at uh, six point five out of ten for this one. But definitely, it's it's it is worth seeing. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he didn't like say he didn't make a whole lot of movies, so just about any of his films will probably get you some type of entertainment value. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right, that is the big show. I gotta get off here and play and go to daddy duty now. Um, thanks, Todd, again for coming on, helping out. Uh, thanks, Arrow, again for the releases. Uh, next week we're gonna do a couple more arrows. We got uh, lined up some more Pam Greer. We're gonna do Sheba Baby, and uh, we're gonna be doing uh, uh, the Mutilator, also known as Fall Break, uh, which we're gonna have some fun with. I think I've already seen watched the Mutilator for the show. Uh, so I definitely know we're going to have some good conversation there, and I'm going to watch Sheba Baby as soon as possible. So look forward to that, and Todd should be back. Even if Will comes back, Todd will be here with us again next week. We're planning on him being here either way. So, um, well, unless Ty can't fit us in to his uh, schedule. My, you know. my hectic schedule. Yes. <laughs> but, yes, thank you again, as always, Todd. It's, yeah, uh, not a problem at all. My pleasure. Always great to have you on. It's always great, too, when the listeners uh, chime in and say that, hey, you know, if we can't have Will, it's always good to have Todd. And then it makes you feel good that we always bring – you know that we bring people on and people become fans of some of our, you know, our friends uh, on the show. Uh, it warms the cockles. Yes, it does. It's nice. Um, yeah. So, only one last thing to say, and I think that's uh, adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com, and you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com. Thank you.